Welcome to The Big Picture, a show that takes a deep dive into the political landscape of not only America, but right here in our own backyard of Illinois. It's showtime, folks. The Big Picture is on WCPT 820. And now, here's your host, Edwin Eisentrath. Hello again, everybody. Um... For those of you not in Chicago, I, I know last week I said spring might be here, but this week it snowed again. What are you going to do in the upper Midwest? <laughs> anyway, I, I want to get into it because we have a lot to do today. Uh, starting, I think, with maybe context and history, because, you know, the revelations, if I can use a biblical term, from the Dominion lawsuit against Fox prove what every listener to this show knows. Fox is a propaganda network that finds profit in partisan Republican lies. Now, you might ask, and it's a fair question, how did it get this way? Because it sure seems like some powerful and unfortunate pairing of forces, political and economic, combined to warp a news organization into such a, I don't know, pitiable and dangerous thing. But you would be wrong. Because Fox News did not become this way over time. It was founded for this purpose by Roger Ailes, who first pushed the idea as an aide in the Nixon White House. And it was never about news. Ailes understood that unpopular Republican policies, policies that would stall the country's forward movement on civil rights, on women's rights, on environmental protection, these could not be implemented without a decades-long propaganda effort aimed at damaging the idea of liberal democracy itself. And over at the Justice Department, at the very same time, the political operative Kevin Phillips was pushing a new politics that he promised would lead to a permanent Republican majority. He said the party that assembles the biggest collection of ethnic and racial animosities will always win. So began the Southern strategy in the Nixon White House that would, in time, transform the South from Democratic to Republican and, with cover from Fox, would make it fashionable in GOP circles to, you know, once again be a racist and a bigot. Nixon was a suspicious, corrupt, and dishonest showman. He made the Marine Band play Hail to the Chief every time he entered a crowded room. Look, the Watergate scandal, it's hard to remember this, was not simply a third-rate burglary. It was a presidentially-led effort to subvert the rule of law, whether by abusing the IRS auditing powers or by firing the attorney general to stop investigations into his corruption. This is Fox's founding DNA, a shallow, paranoid, and showy patriotism, a strategy to both sow and reap ethnic animosities a deep, corrupt view of the purposes of government, and a long-range goal to undermine democracy. It is a powerful and loathsome combination. And its corruption poisons our souls. Our fellow citizens, look, I, I, my heart goes out to the people who watch Fox, but they're no different than the mass of humanity that learned about the world from other successful, highly partisan propagandists, you know, Goebbels Nazi radio or, or, you know, Soviet TV. The poison is such that they would rather deny what they see with their own eyes than confront the lies that have now shaped their consciousness. 
They need our help. And look, Tucker Carlson, a truly vile liar and racist, can privately say that he hates Trump at the very moment he goes on air to peddle the big lie. Most humans, most human beings have a moral compass that would just would make that kind of thing impossible. (laughs) Not Tucker. The corruption of his soul is complete. And where does this toxic combination lead this country? Well, we're now able to see it take shape. And what we see, if we just step back and look, is quite unrecognizable as the America that we believe in. Child labor, book bans, the abandonment of public education, authoritarian power grabs where gerrymandered and unaccountable legislatures simply annul local authorities and governors fire elected prosecutors for not falling in line. Right-wing governments pressuring corporations to get on their talking points. Power for its own sake. Power that strips Americans of rights we fought hard to win. Power that is designed to intimidate by first attacking the most vulnerable. And don't be naive. After that, they come for the next and the next and the next. This is not us. This is not the American way. But we've allowed it to grow because tolerance optimism, and goodwill are. This attack, dating back to the 1970s, has succeeded beyond its founders' wildest dreams because they took advantage of our good nature. So now we're at the precipice. And not just Fox now, MAGA mills seeded by Fox lies multiply across the social media landscape. Uh, And, you know, I mean, just this week, if you look at the spending on Facebook, uh, these right wing sites are popping up in advance of the next election like crazy, pitching the same nonsense. Look, legal scholars have examined the Dominion case expect Fox to lose. But I ask you, will a corrupt and partisan Supreme Court let them off the hook because Fox and the court are creatures of the same political movement? I just can't believe I have to ask that. Um, It's so easy to look at current events and see them only in the present, in the time we live in. But it's not good enough. And this is why I'm taking the time at the beginning of this show to talk to you like this. We have to understand Fox has DNA that goes back to the corrupt Nixon White House that shares that DNA with the inventors of the Southern strategy who inherited it from the antebellum big cotton. Look, make no mistake, this is ever and always about finding a path for a powerful minority to impose its will on the rest of us. Lincoln understood that. That's what this is in our time. And that's why Leonard Leo, the architect of the capture of the Supreme Court, is now involved in Teneo and other creepy half-hidden efforts to build a powerful right-wing funding culture and efforts to reshape America in ways that the majority just totally rejects. By the way, I'm not kidding you about the creepy part. Teneo, that group that I mentioned, they, 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 they meet, you know, they have a website that doesn't say anything, but they meet, you know, without much publication, and they promise to find spouses as well as political jobs for young men who will become shock troops in the authoritarian revolution whose victories they can now taste. This is our fight, and I, for one, welcome it. 
time will tell whether Americans in this era have the courage and the determination uh, to fight like the Americans who, um, you know, fought in the 20th century's great wars to save democracy. I'm not afraid and I'm not despondent because I've seen how America has risen to this challenge. Women will not be forced backwards. And look, Michiganders have already taken their government back. In Wisconsin, and I hope you will help in Wisconsin this week, Democrats are on the verge of being able to go on offense after years of getting pushed aside by the country's most gerrymandered regime. Everywhere, people are finding ways to stand up, to participate, to join forces, to speak out, to vote, even if they have to wait in line. We have finally begun to break the autocrats' momentum. Now, that doesn't mean they're not coming at us full bore, but they're not winning the way they were. We need to grow our majority. We need to win a few more election cycles. We need to speak up. We need to speak out. We need to stay together. And that last one's hard for Democrats. We need to reflect our values. And if we avoid getting distracted by each outrage that comes in wave after wave, but we remain focused on who we are, then I have no doubt of the outcome. We will overcome this insurrection and we will be reborn as the world's first and most enduring, truly multiracial and inclusive democracy. It's very exciting. And I know those of you who are listening have been helping. And I hope, as I said, you will go help in Wisconsin this week. Um, I'm going to be joined in just a minute by Jennifer Berkshire, who is fabulous, and you are not going to want to miss any of it. But I'm going to take my first commercial break right now so that we can focus our time together um, without so many breaks in just a minute. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Okay, we are back. And as um, those of you who listen often know, it's... um, it's really fun for me to talk to people who are just so much smarter than I am, who know more than I'll ever know. They're really interesting. And Jennifer Berkshire is one of them. She's a writer who writes about education and politics. She's created and co-hosts a podcast called Have You Heard, which is about education policy. She teaches at both Boston College and UMass Amherst. And she's an author of a book, uh, Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, The Dismantling of Public Education and the Future of School. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Can you hear me okay? I can. I can. So, um, Let's start here. Two weeks ago, I talked with a woman named Beth Lewis, who's a teacher and now the director of Save Our Schools Arizona. And I was, frankly, um, stunned by what she told me. And the attack on public education is so thorough in that state and and thoroughly subversive that I, I just needed to better understand its origins and help, you know, understand the connections of the attack on schools to the other ideas animating the autocratic right. And that, that brought me to you. Help. (laughs) Help. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, uh, first of all, I just I just wanted to say that I had the pleasure of listening to your very inspirational intro to the show, and I could not agree with you more. And in, and I feel like it's so key for people to understand how unpopular the rights education extremism is, and that's why it's so important that we understand what's going on so that we can do a better job of, of talking to people about it and presenting an alternative. And so what you were just describing in Arizona is, is absolutely key. You know, when I tell people who do not follow this stuff that you can visit the future by going to Arizona and their parents now get an edu debit card and they can spend state education dollars. Those are the money. That's the money that taxpayers pay for on any education related option that they want. Right. We, we tend to think of this stuff as just like you get the money and you attend a private school. No, that's not it at all. Instead, you can just buy stuff on Amazon and call it school. And and, the you know, the idea is that if you are someone who does not like public education because we pay for it with our taxes, because teachers are a unionized force, and because, you know, schools are a collective enterprise, this is absolutely where you want to go. And, and so you see this tremendous push across the country, in red states in particular, for school privatization that really, you know, it's, it's unlike anything we've seen before, and it ends up with a vision that looks exactly like what your guest described in Arizona. Well, I mean, let's talk about what you described. I assume a parent could use state money to take their kids on an educational trip to, oh, I don't know, Paris, right? I mean, it's certainly more educational than other things they might do. But but the, these grifters, these, these I don't even know what to call them. People are setting up sort of schools in shopping malls to take this money and say, drop your kid off on the way to work. We'll, we'll provide the education that, you know, has our values. But there's no I mean, they've gotten government so out of it. There's no, they could be pedophiles. They could be anything that you leave your kids with. I mean, the one thing they aren't is trained teachers. That's absolutely right. And it's so different from the discourse around schools that we've grown so used to over the past three decades. And so, like, if we went back and listened to George W. Bush and Barack Obama talking about schools, they talked about them. You wouldn't be able to tell the difference, which is really kind of astounding these days. But, you know, they were very intent on the idea that we needed to measure everything that was happening in schools. And that's how we were going to determine whether a school was good or not. The vision that is unfolding in Arizona is completely different. Advocates like Betsy DeVos think that the only regulation we need is the ability of a parent to, quote unquote, vote with their feet. And so if a parent picks a school, that means it's good by definition. And if they don't like it, then they can leave. And you're absolutely right about this, this idea that, that these schools won't have trained teachers. That's by design. The, you know, the hot trend coming out of Arizona is something called a for-profit micro school. And the best way to think of it is really like, it's like Uber, but for schools. So anyone could set up a quote unquote micro school in their house. You have to pay, pass very minimal 
safety test. But otherwise, there's no there's no license needed, no background in education. And then, you know, the kids get dropped off and they are educated online and you are paid per head. And it works out to something like minimum wage. So if you if you're of the mindset that we spend way too much on schools, this is a dream for you. So, look, I was a public school teacher in the 1980s in Chicago, and schools were terrible. Um, And the system was a system designed really without thinking about the kids or hadn't thought about the kids in years and thought really, well, it's just a a large employment system with a big, um, uh, you know, budget for the city. But then we've had 30 years, really, or 40 years of serious school reform efforts, not just in Chicago, but across the country. And schools are better than they were when I was teaching. They're a lot better by almost every measure. Um, and educating every American is hard to do. I mean, it's just an enormously big task when we have so many other challenges in childhood, really, across the country. This this effort on the right it is an effort to stop that progress as it's finally getting to um, families who need it the most and to resegregate in, you know, in ways that will leave people behind and um, and deeply damage those who are fool enough to drop their kids off at a, you know, m- mini mall. You're, first of all, I just have to say that you're absolutely right. My co-author and co-host is an education historian, and he would be so happy to hear you make the case that our schools have improved over time. Because we almost never hear that. And we never hear people making the case that the reason that we spend a lot of money in this country on public education is that we start with a much bigger goal than a lot of other countries. That, you know, we're going we're gonna to educate all kids. It, it's hard to find other countries that are as serious about that as we have been. And so you are also absolutely right that the goal of the right is to roll back that progress. And we think of education as somehow separate from all the other fights that are happening right now. This concerted effort to roll back women's rights, to roll back LGBTQ rights. Well, I have news for you. It is in our public schools that we, you know, we mark out those rights, defend them and expand them. And that is a big reason why the right is so intently focused on schools right now, both in limiting what kids can learn and teachers can talk about in school, but also trying to move kids off the rolls into private settings where they don't have the same rights. I, ugh. I mean, it just I makes like me I, ill. I've stunned you into silence here. Well, it, 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 I'm not sure I'm as stunned as much as I'm disgusted. And and it's hard to find, um, it, it's hard to find, you know, common ground with my fellow Americans who think that's a good idea. I mean, but let, let's just talk about the, the, let's change a little bit and talk about the politics. When um, Glenn Youngkin, who's the, uh, governor of Virginia. He won a close election there, and he won it um, by making schools an issue. And at the time, I just thought, well, his Democratic opponent didn't really run a good race, because how could Democrats lose 
you know, an election on an issue of schools when, you know, the Republicans have never seen a school budget they didn't want to cut or a system they didn't want to privatize or a curriculum they didn't want to politicize. So just that we just must have run a terrible campaign. It didn't occur to me that we were actually losing the argument, but we are, aren't we? Well, I would actually encourage people to look at that a little differently. Glenn Youngkin ran, he won a close race. That's important to acknowledge. But he also, he ran on schools in a way that no other Republican has done. One, he pledged to make the single largest investment in public education in Virginia history. Have you heard any Republican in any other state say anything even remotely like that? No, and we can talk about Iowa in a bit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like the, and I think where Glenn Youngkin really differs from, say, a Ron DeSantis is that he, he managed to put together a very unusual coalition. He rallied his base. These are the people who really rear up when they hear ominous talk about kids being indoctrinated, when they hear about about gender ideology and critical race theory. But Glenn Youngkin spends a lot of time talking to affluent parents whose main concern is that their kids get the they, a leg up so that they can get into an Ivy League college. That's a really unusual coalition. We have not seen anything like that repeated in any other state. Instead, think about like this this war that Ron DeSantis has started to wage against the uh, against advanced placement classes and how that went over like a lead balloon with his constituents, because all of a sudden you have parents, including parents who voted for him. Thinking, you know, like, what are you talking about, Ron DeSantis? AP is the way that, you know, we're going to make college cheaper or we're going to increase um, little Edwin's chances of getting into an elite institution. What do you mean that you're going to we're going to get rid of AP in Florida that, you know, he's he's moving in the opposite direction. Right. His coalition is actually getting smaller. Well, nothing would make me happier than Ron DeSantis's coalition getting smaller. Um, uh, I don't understand. Again, I don't understand his AP attack. I mean, it's part of sort of a. I mean, and some of this is can only. I, I guess the only way to understand it is we are going to show you that when we have power, we're not afraid to use it. There's a certain sort of you know bullying intimidation to we can destroy a public school system. So don't get in our way. Think what we can do to you. Because there isn't any there because there, the policy ideas are so nonsensical. The kids are, are going to be worse off, almost all of them, because of it. I, I think that you are. I think that you're right about the fact that they are eager to show us that they're comfortable using state power. But. They are not at all united over the point of using state power. And I'll give you an example. You mentioned that, that, you know, since you taught in the Chicago public schools in the 80s, a lot of things have improved. And one of the things that's really improved is that many, many more kids go to, go on to college. We expect that that is one of the things that those schools are preparing them to do. Well, if you listen to the right right now, they are not... Not at all sure that college should be a goal anymore. They're spending a lot of time warning that colleges are places that indoctrinate your kids. And so sometimes Ron DeSantis will will discourage people from going to college. Other on another day, his goal will be to take over the colleges and have them teach only right wing stuff. 
And, you know, and, and then sometimes the, you know, they're back to sort of an old Republican vision, which is that you align colleges really tightly with the needs of employers, right? That like kids can go to college, but they're only going to study stuff that equips them to work for the jobs that are available. So they're all over the place um, with this. And it's a great example of how the being, you know, they're keen on using state power, but they're not quite figured out about what they want to what it, what they want to do with that state power other than, you know, like go after the most vulnerable kids. Yeah, I, it is. It, I mean, you're you're making me feel a little better because you're describe what you're describing is um, not not a coherent view on the right which makes me feel better for not being able to understand what their view is. But the, the pieces of it, each one of those pieces that makes up the set of their views is appalling, right? I mean, I know they hate college because uh, f- for no, for many reasons, but, but no one is needed other than college-educated Americans know better than to vote for them. Um, it, so they can't really hold on when people have a broader view. I mean, their their attack is on a broad worldview at every level, whether it's, uh, oh, my gosh, there's a kid who might be trans. Let's go after that. Or banning books left and right. I mean, what what do you think of this book banning or the gag education gag order stuff that's going on? So when um, I I remind people at every opportunity how deeply unpopular these measures are, that there really is no issue that unites Americans across party lines like their revulsion for book banning. And that's pretty incredible when you consider how divided we are. And so, you know, you started out your you did your lead up to the to this. Uh, show talking about what happened in in Michigan, and so that's a that's a great example because you had candidates, Republican candidates, up and down the ballot there, running on things like book banning, running yep. on things like going after trans athletes, and what happened? The you know like Michiganders overwhelmingly rejected them. The same happened in in Wisconsin. It was obviously much closer, but there you had the Republican gubernatorial candidate running on the idea that we shouldn't actually have public schools. Well, voters think that that is an extreme idea and they don't want anything to do with it. So I would just, you know, like consistently remind people how unpopular this stuff is and that we're supposed to believe that somehow the power of, you know, this this parents' rights issue is so potent for Republicans that they're going to be able to rally voters and not just Republican voters, but they're going to be able to lure independents over to vote for them by by running on stuff that's really unpopular. It doesn't add up and it never has. No, but they aren't backing down, even though they're losing. I mean, in in Michigan, um, you know, that they're candidate who espoused all of this nonsense is now the head of the Michigan Republican Party. The party put her there. So it's um, uh, they seem to think that this is a path to power, if not through popular means, through other means. 
Yeah, they, I, I totally agree. After the midterms, there was a brief moment where you actually heard some introspection. Like, hey, guys, we spent all this money going after trans athletes and it didn't work. Maybe we should have talked more about things people care about. But then within a matter of weeks, that had been completely forgotten. I think because, you know, everyone has Ron DeSantis envy. And, and in Florida, that strategy seemed to work for him. Although even there, you know, there was a poll out this week showing how deeply unpopular the specific components of his agenda are um, when it comes to things like educator gag orders and, and book banning. And he gets awfully defensive when people ask him about those book bans. So what I've seen happen since the midterms is basically they have collectively forgotten uh, the lesson of their weak performance and are now you know, doubling down on on an agenda that just gets more and more extreme by the week. Can you imagine how extreme their agenda around schools and vulnerable kids is going to look by 2024? I, I can't even I can't even imagine. Jeremy Young, who um, is at Pan America, and, they, you know, they they this organization looks at freedom of the press, very freedom of writing um, uh, a lot all over the world. And Pen America focuses here in the U.S. And he's been on the show a few times. Um, you know, and the first time I thought, OK, well, you're going to tell us some things that have been bad in the last cycle. But we keep having to talk because uh, it keeps getting worse, because in places where the GOP is in control um, and they're in control in part because of gerrymandering, um, it doesn't matter that it's unpopular. They keep doing it. But I, I really am convinced that at a certain point, this comes back to bite them. And the reason that I'm so convinced of this is because I have spent quite a bit of time studying what happened with the parents' rights crusade in the 1990s. And mm-hmm. your listeners probably don't remember this, but parents' rights was part of the contract with America platform Mm -hmm. in the 90s. Uh, When Pat Buchanan announced his presidential run in New Hampshire in the 90s, he he told people that he was going to be the parents' rights president. And what happened was that the more people came to understand parents' rights is really just code for book banning and and rolling back the rights of women and lesbian, lesbians and gays at that time, the more they really came to, to look on the movement as something that they didn't like. And I am convinced that we will begin to see the same thing here. You can already see that the more, the broader these efforts to censor books get, the more that people turn their attention, you know, they move first from school library, then to the public library. You're hearing talk of Republican legislators introducing uh, bans on what private bookstores can sell. That kind of stuff makes people really uncomfortable. And I think that is how you turn this, what to me already seems like a, a cause that has been way oversold in the Republican Party, starts to make it seem like a real loser. Yeah, I share your optimism about um, uh, ultimately winning. I do. And and then I believe, as you do, that Americans <laughs> are not afraid of ideas and that we welcome uh, free exchange of thought and that censorship is appalling to all of us. 
So I, I'm, I, I get that. But the path is still fraught with um, structural problems in our democracy and the intimidating use of power that, that we see from these mega governors and legislatures when they're in control. So, um, you know, I'd like to win it sooner rather than in 100 years. And, and that means we have to win a few election cycles in a row. You're, um, you are absolutely right. And, you know, I spent a lot of time in Michigan and I started going there in 2016 and 2017 after Betsy DeVos was tapped to be Trump's secretary of education. And boy, did people there feel beaten down and they felt beaten down because of gerrymandering. They feel felt beaten down because the, the Republicans had been in charge for so long and, you know, they had, uh, introduced all sorts of sweeping changes like right to work. And people felt beaten down because the DeVos family was able to use their their money to basically fund this, you know, to get buy off an entire uh, legislature. And so you fast forward to today and like what a tale of inspiration that Democrats in Michigan were able to rebuild their state party and and also, you know, like make a powerful case to people who live in the state for why they should vote for them. And there's so much to be there's so much to be learned there. And the fact that it really it did center so much on on education and an agenda that turned out to be really unpopular. Yes. And Michigan has fantastic leadership of the Democratic Party and Lavora Barnes, who's a a miracle worker and and, uh, you know, a governor that got underestimated, who's really fabulous. Uh, uh, And and I think the leadership of women in the state made a huge difference, huge difference. Yeah, I I think you're you're absolutely right. And, you know, the other thing, like I was tracking for several years before this happened, that this was really, you know, before the sort of Betsy DeVos wing of the Republican Party realized that the combination of the pandemic and the culture wars were really those were things that were going to be absolutely key to getting their real agenda through, which is school privatization. But what you know, what I would track cycle after cycle was that you would have these Republican legislators in Michigan who would have to run on the DeVos education agenda because the DeVos family was bankrolling them. And Mm -hmm. so they would end up running in, you know, in the suburbs of Detroit um, on, you know, making the argument that, well, we really what we really need are private school vouchers. And you think about, you know, like we complain so much about affluent suburbanites moving to the suburbs for the schools. Why would then that message that we shouldn't have public schools appeal to them? It doesn't. And it doesn't. So, you know, pay <laughs> it does not. And so, uh, so we're as we as we watch the Republicans double down on this stuff and and go in a more and more extreme direction. This is where you and I and your smart listening audience need to continually nudge Democrats to pay attention to this and craft mm-hmm. a more effective message that's going to appeal to those constituents who are so turned off by the Republicans' education extremism. Yep, yep. I, I want to um, just change the subject a little bit. Uh, I, you re- wrote a piece that was in the New York Times recently, and I loved it. 
it resonated deeply with my own experience. Uh, I've always thought of, of our schools as places where, you know, young people exercise their imagination, they discipline their minds, they develop habits of civic engagement in our democracy. But I never imagined that anything I could teach them would be sufficient to lift all of my students out of the poverty that trapped whole communities in my city. The, the um, You know, it may help them advocate for those change, but it's not going to, schools are not the only answer to everything that ails our society. And in, in so many communities, particularly communities of poverty in the United States, they are the last public institution that's there, you know, with a drive-by by a police force that may or may not be hostile and afraid. But like, we can't expect our schools, with all the progress they've made, they're making it in an impossible task. They can't do this by themselves. And, and you wrote about that a little bit, and I wonder if you'd talk about that. Yeah, so this is this is it's kind of amazing to me that we even have to say that. But the you know that really was just the kind of organizing belief that united Republicans and Democrats really for three decades. And when I said that you couldn't tell the difference between the way that George W. Bush and Barack Obama talked about schools, that's exactly what I was talking about. This faith that somehow the schools are going to be the thing that lifts kids out of poverty and that, you know, you really don't need a robust social safety net. You really you don't need unions for example, um, because the, you know, we're going to rely on schools as the primary instrument for, for social mobility. And the, you know, the problem is that people are always surprised when you point out that only 30% of, of people in this country actually have college degrees. And so what you end up doing is, you know, for people who have ended up getting on the short end of that, that stick, right? Like either they didn't go to college or they went for, to a, a little bit of college and ended up with debt and no degree. You're basically telling them that they didn't do enough with their education. So whatever, if they're in poverty, it's their fault. That argument has been absolutely devastating as as far as, you know, creating this kind of hostile divide, right? Education polarization is the, the key divide in our country right now. And so now we're in this moment where Democrats recognize that education, schools are not the only thing that's going to do it. But they seem to be struggling to articulate a vision both of, of well, what is going to do it, but also what are schools for then? And I, I see the Biden people really kind of casting about here. Like they don't they don't know they don't have a vision of what public education is for. And if you follow uh, the secretary of education, Miguel Cardona on Twitter, it really is like his tweets are just a blast from the past where, you know, like it's about college for all and and the, you know, uh, international competition, meeting the needs of employers. And then, as I mentioned earlier, the Republicans really like they are all over the place as far as being able to describe what education is for. Um, but so now you and I and your listeners need to finish that piece that I wrote and explain like, well, OK, this was not it was a big mistake to keep all of our, put all of our eggs in the education basket. So what do we do instead? Yeah, I mean, I felt guilty um, for years watching 
Um, you know, it's really easy for a politician to go to a school and say, I'm for schools and get that picture with kids. Um, and, and in fairness, I, it was a trade off because schools were getting better for years. And I, for a lot in systems were getting better for years. They were getting more serious, but it was never sufficient to lift people out of poverty in big numbers. It was never going to deal with the inequities in our economy. And, and in those very same years are the years that we developed the biggest wealth gap in the history of the world. Right. So it, um, it, it was the, the playing field was clearly tilted against these kids we were educating even as their education was getting better. But it was a guilty trade-off, and I was never comfortable with it. I think, though, if we answer your question, Jennifer, we will play into some very tough politics, because part of what at least I think schools are for is to get people ready for citizenship in a democracy, um, and to, to get them to educate themselves how they want to be educated. It's up to them as they grow and 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 get curious about the world. But, um, you know, education and democracy is what the Republicans will then scream up and down that it's indoctrination. I mean, they, you know, they don't want history read. No, you're you're absolutely right. So this is, you know, this is something that we talk about in my uh, the classes that I teach that, you know, students are really surprised to learn that that our understanding of why we have public education has really changed over time. Because, you know, in their lifetime, like they never heard anyone referring to schools as a place to kind of raise up citizens for a democracy. They, you know, like they went to school because that's where your math and English standardized test scores got raised and you were being prepared for college and career. And so if we define schools along the lines of the way that you just described, they would obviously run very differently. And you are absolutely right that, you know, there is a reason that Republicans, the gag orders that they're passing, they're not just about things like what kind of history can be talked or don't say gay, um, the, the Florida bill. The, you know, one of the other things that they're also, they're also keen to ban is so-called action civics. And these are programs that encourage students to pick some issue that they're passionate about that relates to some need in their community and, and to experience for themselves that they have the power to make a difference. And so when you see that that's one of the things that Republicans want to get rid of, it's really clear that they, you know, they're trying to rein in that concept of citizenship. And then finally, you don't actually have to look very far to find conservatives blurting out exactly what all of this is about. And this is the overarching concern that kids are coming out of public schools and frankly, they're not voting the right way. And so you heard somebody like a Larry Arn. He's the president of Hillsdale College in Michigan. His midterm take was, you know, he was shocked at the percentage of young Americans who voted for Democrats. And so for him, this is the metric that shows that our schools are failing, right? Not test yeah. scores, not graduation. It's the voting uh, I, breakdown. Yep. I have the misfortune of being on that college's mailing list and seeing the appalling stuff they send out, the expensive and appalling, appalling stuff they send out. But, I, you know, I, I'm old. I'm not this old, but I, you know, I read as a young man and I, even when I was teaching, I would go back and read Emerson on education 
and a very different view about public education and its relationship to, uh, you know, uh, we human beings and our ability to have power in the world over things, over, you know, whether it's over a farm or a, some kind of a machine. But schools were meant in his idea to make us, I don't know, masters of our own fate and 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 then connected to each other in ways that we would grow and, and, and choose. And it was up to the kids and their families to say, look, this is the education I want, not to the state to say, I'm going to train you to take a job in, in, you know, in the furrier's shop next door, but for you to be able to have those decisions to increase your freedom through school. And I thought that was a pretty powerful way to think about public schools. It is really powerful. And one of the things that I have learned is that whatever we are fighting about when it comes to public education, we have fought about it before and that you can just take that all the way back to the very earliest days of public education. So I mentioned, for example, that there was a big push for parental rights in the 1990s that feels mm-hmm. so similar to today. Well, you know, the the very first parental rights push was in the at the in the early 20th century as a way to resist child labor regulations. Isn't that time? Mm. And so there are these unresolved questions about what school is for and who should get to decide. And we, you know, we fight these out decade by decade. And I think that the, you know, part of the problem is that for for Democrats and progressives, these fights come as like uh, they come, they're brand new every time, right? Whereas if we read, if we if we studied our history a little bit more, we wouldn't be surprised, and we might have a better idea of how to respond to these things. See, I knew it was the right thing to do to find you for this show. <laughs> Boy, you're good. <laughs> um, and and we do talk about history sometimes here because context matters enormously. Um, and, you know, if you step up to the, to use a baseball now, so you step up to the plate and every pitch is new, you're not going to get any better. You're just not going to get fooled every time. We, so we, I don't think we're having this discussion, though, that you raised about what are schools for. I just, I, I don't hear that discussion right now in our politics, at least. I think we're fighting over schools for sure. But I don't hear anybody saying anymore, this is what a school is for. So it's interesting that you should say that, because I feel like that is one area where the right is having a real effect. Because you hear a loud chorus of people saying that uh, that it's been a mistake to say that schools are just about about. Uh, preparing kids for careers. Really what we want schools to do is to inculcate values in kids. And those should be values like virtue. Uh, those should be values like uh, like uh, respect for free enterprise, et cetera, patriotism in particular. And whereas the, you know, the Democrats are, they're spending all their time fending off the attacks on public schools, but they are not similarly able to articulate uh, a case for why we have schools. And I've been really interested. I have my students read a lot of conservative critiques of public education. And this, you know, argument that schools should, should inculcate virtue, they find very appealing. Even if they disagree with the messengers, I force them to read 
Fox News correspondent Pete Hegseth's book, The Battle for the American Mind. Mm. They, they were really unhappy with me about that. But they did. You know, that that argument that that schools should be about more than just standardized test scores and and workforce preparation spoke to them, I think, in part because their own experiences of public education were so almost, you know, so desiccated, right? That yeah. like, so yeah. much of the so much of the the kind of meaning and the 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 ability to explore ideas has been stripped away. So so I I feel like that you know like that's really a, a discussion that we need to have, especially as some space opens up for a different vision other than test prep and and workforce yeah. preparation. I mean it, it's not an accident that Bill Bennett after he was. Um, education secretary, and I would argue a loathsome one, wrote a book, a kid's book about virtue and talked about these are the virtues we should be teaching our kids. I just went back and and reread some of his speeches when he was in the Reagan White House, and boy, was he ahead of his time. um, I'm used to thinking that about about Pat Buchanan, who really sort of seeded the the contemporary Republican Party. But if you go back and you look at what Bennett was saying, everything from the this, you know, sort of obsession with virtue, but also, you know, he was the that was the first real push for vouchers. Um, yep. uh, you know, came from came from the Reagan administration, and you know they sank like a stone because people were you know they couldn't believe that you would you you would use public money to fund religious education. Now we mostly you know we think of Bennett as sort of a joke um, because of the trouble that he ran into with gambling, but yep. he you know no, he, he, really, he really foreshadowed where where the Republicans were going to end up on education. Yeah, and 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 I know that it is um, it's it's frequently conservatives in history who talk about virtues and they define them in a very conservative way. But but um, progressive Americans have values too. And we don't. I don't. I'm going to just say this isn't an argument that one side believes in values and the other side doesn't. We differ a little bit on what those are, um, and on who gets to. And, and on whether how dogmatic they are, who gets to decide. That, you know, that's absolutely right. And I think one of the big challenges right now for people who who feel like it is urgent to step up and defend public education as an institution is just how impoverished our language is. That the, the language of individual choice and competition has so completely shaped our understanding of, of how we talk about schools. So, you know, my co-author and I do events all over the place. And the, the single most frequent question we get is how can we do a better job of marketing our school? And my heart sinks every time because, you know, if that's how you're framing the question, you've already lost. We need some discourse that resonates around, you know, the public good, around the fact that we're not all just in this as individuals. And so I, you know, I would encourage people to look at communities where public schools have really been under siege and and watch, watch as, you know, as parents and community members and students come together to defend them, but, you know, find the, find the language to articulate why we need uh, a public good and frankly, a community. 
Well, you've just you've just reminded me uh, in Chicago, we went through a, a, some major school closings a few years ago, lots of them all at once. Um, and they were by and large in neighborhoods that didn't have the population left to support the schools. They were almost entirely um, lower income black neighborhoods. And the parents would come out and defend the schools and they wouldn't defend them for any reasons other than these are important to our community. These are our places. They are um, sanctuaries for our children. They are they are um, they help us define who we are. And they were defending that. Um, they weren't talking about you know, the, the school budget for sure. They weren't really talking about the curriculum. Sometimes they were talking about school quality, but not usually, but, but the institution meant so much as a center of these communities and their absence has meant a great deal. Um, and and been very damaging in communities. And we've seen that in the years since. That you're so right about that. The, the the fallout from those school closures continues to resonate today, mm-hmm. right? That, that mm-hmm. community after community lost any anchor, and and you know, and we we don't do that. Those same policies are are rarely implemented in affluent communities. And one of the, you know, sort of most interesting repercussions, there was a young scholar, her name is Sally Nuama, who she was studying the impact of school closures. And she wrote a terrific piece arguing that, you know, the reason that Rahm Emanuel decided not to run for re-election was that he, he looked at those communities and uh, where he had closed schools and saw that he, you know, he had lost enough votes that he couldn't be reelected. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it really it, it, it continues to be uh, felt today. It's going to be felt in the in the the election for mayor that's coming up in a few weeks. It sure is. It's a very important issue. We Jennifer, we have run out of time. Um, and I, I am thrilled at this conversation. I think it's not over. Um, and I'm going to beg you to come back again, maybe to focus on the part we haven't done yet, which is to really talk about what schools are for and what, what, what we think a vision ought to be for education in this country of ours. I would love to come back. Um, I forgot to mention this, but I'm actually from Springfield, Illinois, so I feel like we're related. I love that. I love that. Thank you. Anyway, you've been really remarkable. Time flew by. Um, um, And we will talk again. Thank you so much. All right, everybody. That was Jennifer Berkshire. The book is A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, The Dismantling of Public Education and the Future of School. And wow, Um, we're going to take a break for the news. Don't go away. We have uh, more incredible stuff as soon as we get back. Listening to the big picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820. Okay, welcome back. And I promised you that we would continue with fabulous conversations. And you're going to love this because Will Summer, who joins me now, is a journalist who covers politics, tech, the Internet for the Daily Beast. And he's the author of Trust the Plan the rise of QAnon, and the conspiracy that unhinged America. Will, welcome. Edwin, thank you. So um, I don't, I, it's almost too big for me to know where to start, but maybe uh, 
I, I could start here because it's sort of recent news. Um, you wrote, uh, you wrote in a way, I think today maybe or yesterday you published this piece that helps us understand, you know, uh, Maria Bartiromo and Sidney Powell and some of the things that they were saying on the air that, you know, were just crazy, but all about the election. And now they've all come to light in this uh, 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 Dominion lawsuit that has Fox, thank goodness, on its heels. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, this article you're mentioning is just like the book. I I, I try my work to make clear to people who, um, you know, to the to the average voter, to the average person, um, just sort of how far gone um, some of our fellow citizens are. And, and how these conspiracy theories are, are motivating what happens in our politics. Um, and so in this article, you know, the, using some of the exhibits that have been introduced in the Dominion lawsuit, I was able to drill down into really what, what Fox News' source was uh, in terms of this idea that Dominion had stolen the election. Um, and as it turned out, it's a woman who I think it's fair to say is pretty detached from reality. Um, this was a random person who emailed Sidney Powell and then from there got her message on Maria Bartiromo's show. She's a woman who, you know, in addition to saying that Dominion stole the election, she also thinks that Antonin Scalia was murdered during a, quote, human hunting expedition. Um, she, you know, she, she believes herself to, to be a ghost. I mean, it, and, and so I talked to her and I mean, she had, I said, so where did you get this idea, you know, that helped power January 6th, for example? And she said, well, you know, uh, sometimes I, I listen to song lyrics, and I watch TV and I decode these hidden messages in them. Um, and so, this sounds crazy. It's because it is. Uh, but but that's really where we're at um, in terms of of what's driving a lot of the politics on the right. right well, I got to just I have to stop and just ask you to ex- sort of be more explicit about the journalism, because just the claim that you figured out who the source of, you know, the big lie is, is is amazing. So can you just put the pieces together at how did you find this woman and, you know, how is it, how do you know it's her? Yeah. So to be clear, I mean, this is not the only person who is pushing the idea of the election was stolen. I mean, certainly we know that the night uh, Donald Trump lost, he went out there and said the election was stolen. But in this yep. case, you know, I'm, I was trying to drill down on this Maria Bartiromo segment that took place five days after the election that really played a huge role in creating this idea that the election was stolen by Dominion software in these voting machines. So right. when I looked at it, and this is, of course, now sort of the the, the segment that, that sparked the this $1.6 billion lawsuit against Fox News. Um, and so reading the emails back and forth, I realized that the, the source, you know, quote unquote source here, was a woman named Marlena Bourne. Now, I follow a lot of this stuff for a living. I had never heard of this person. Um, and so I sent, you know, using some, some databases, I figured out what her email was, and I emailed her, and a few days later, she called me back and said, essentially, okay, well, what do you want to know about, you know, why I think Antonin Scalia was, was hunted for sport, or why he, um, or, or why Dominion stole the election? And I just said, you know, where did you get these? What's your evidence for this? And she walked me through it. And it was frankly, um, you know, it was nonsense. She said, well, you know, sometimes I I sort of pick up these signals in the air, essentially. Um, 
And, and so for that, I, I thought there was like a great irony and, and just sort of a fascinating statement that makes about the, the state of the world and the state of knowledge um, and conspiracy theories that someone who effectively made something up um, and is, frankly, from her email, just not a credible person um, when it comes to a topic like this, that she could just make something up and then within, an, within a day have it being blasted across Fox News. Right. So my mind is reeling here a little bit. I mean, for one, it, um, I, I can't use news and Fox in the same phrase. A journalists, as, as you do, you check your sources, you try and make sure they're credible. You don't just repeat any lie that's told to you. So they don't, they didn't do any of that because this, this, um, fantasy, that this poor woman that you talked to, who clearly is delusional, that this, this poor woman's fantasy, they put on the air because it met their political need, right? They did it for that purpose. It's nothing to do with journalism. Um, but there are, I guess, hundreds of examples like that, and you follow them in your book. Uh, so so let's, let's now turn to your book and just, can you help us understand who, you know, like the origin of Q and how, how it ate a chunk of our country. Sure. So QAnon started in October 2017 with a series of anonymous message board posts uh, made by a figure named Q. And the, the power of Q is that people would think that, oh, this guy works for Trump. Maybe it's Michael Flynn. Maybe it's Don Jr. And so these messages, they're very cryptic, and they promise things like Hillary Clinton will be arrested by the end of the month, or um, you know the National Guard is going to move in to arrest all these people. And so, you know, QAnon it gets very very complex. And in the book, I tried to simplify it uh, for folks who may have been kind of scared off of trying to understand what this is. Um, but put put simply, QAnon believers use these clues to sort of construct a universe in their minds in which. The world has been controlled for hundreds of years by a nefarious cabal. And the people in this cabal are the top people in Hollywood, in banking, in the Democratic Party. And so it's Barack Obama, it's Tom Hanks, it's Oprah, it's, it's all these people. And that this cabal exists because they all worship the devil and they sexually abuse and eat children and drink their blood to stay alive. Um, and I know this sounds crazy, <laughs> but that's kind of the well, core of it. But Will, it it sounds to me like the um, the blood libel that has been laid at the Jewish community for centuries now transformed to be not just Jews, but Jews and Democrats. I mean, it, really, it, it, that it's the same libel. That's exactly right. I mean, it, as you say, I mean, this idea, you know, and this, this goes back to the 13th century, this idea that Jewish people were kidnapping Christian children and murdering them and using their blood to make bread for Passover. And so this idea now we see transmuted into, you know, they won't quite say, oh, it's all Jewish people, but they'll say, oh, it's George Soros. You know, they'll name all these Jewish people and say that they're drinking children's blood. So it really is a direct analog. Yeah, I mean, I mean, humans are humans. This is one of the oldest hates in the world, and it's but it has it's taken now a a sort of interesting American turn, 
right? Um, where it's been broadened now to include black folks who turn out to be have a lot of money or power because how could that possibly happen right in a legit world or mm -hmm. uh, i mean it, it, um so so but i can only see in it hate you saw something else i mean that captured people yeah i mean i think people have a there's a lot of things that drive them to QAnon. Um, and there's also this sort of, you know, as you say, I mean, there's this hateful aspect of it, this idea that sort of anyone who isn't like me uh, is going to, you know, soon Donald Trump will send them to Guantanamo Bay. Um, but there's also this, uh, there's this kind of twisted hope about it. And they're told uh, that there's going to be this moment called the storm in which Donald Trump will institute a sort of fascist dictatorship over America. And while well, that sounds awful to you and I, they think it's a great idea um, because they think this kind of this nefarious cabal has been hoarding the cures for diseases that after this happens, that all debts will be abolished. And so people who find themselves in their real lives in dire straits, they have some illness, um, they, they're, they're deep in debt. They're, they're told that, you know, QAnon is, is going to be the way to, the, to this utopia. And that's what drives them into it. So when Donald Trump said, last week at CPAC, for any of you who have a grievance, I am your retribution. He was speaking directly to that, uh, that idea of the storm. That, I mean, that is, the, it, it's really the same kind of emotions, that idea of, um, you know, I need vengeance. We, we, we need to be vindicated. Uh, so many, so often when I talk to people who believe in QAnon, they feel I think rightly or often wrongly, they feel marginalized. They feel like no one takes them seriously. They feel that, um, that you know, they've been, these are often older white people who feel that they've been dispossessed from America, uh, that it's not the America of their childhood. And so they see Donald Trump and QAnon as this, uh, as, you know, the, the, you know, what they call we the people rising up to take back the country. Yeah, I mean, they may have properly diagnosed their own, alienation but they've they, they got the wrong cure for sure <laughs> um, but this is th th this is this is common in you know rising authoritarian uh, regimes all it, throughout history that people feel alienated and somebody gives them this notion that there is a we the people that's bigger than the collection of individuals we live with and that it speaks through some someone who magically has this connection with the people, whatever that means. Um, and it usually means we're going to get rid of anybody who's different. Absolutely. I mean, it is a, um, you know, the, the things they focus on in QAnon that they see as agents of the cabal uh, are all of these, these different things. I mean, they're, they're immigrants uh, who they say, you know, are all gangsters and causing MS-13, um, you know, that they, that, you know, trans people, all of these things, gay people, certainly, um, that they see as these, as this other um, that they think will be essentially set straight once the, once the storm happens. Well, what is it? I mean, every prediction of Q has been wrong. Is that right? I mean, they, like Hillary isn't in jail. The storm hasn't happened. But there are thousands of others along the way. When does the collected, like tomorrow you're going to get called up to heaven. Oops, it didn't happen. It's Thursday. Oops, it didn't happen. When does, when do they say like, you know what, I'm being had? Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's fascinating watching people deal with this cognitive dissonance 
uh, when, you know, the first QAnon prediction was that Hillary Clinton would be arrested in about two weeks. Obviously, that didn't happen, but it didn't stop QAnon from growing from there. So what it's really remarkable seeing people deal with this issue. Um, And often they say, well, you know, I guess it's that, you know, we didn't understand how tough the deep state was. For example, when Donald Trump uh, lost, obviously, and then when Joe Biden was inaugurated, they didn't say, oh, well, I guess, you know, if Trump's not president, he can't do the storm. I guess this thing was all fake. They say, well, I guess, you know, we didn't carry out the plan like we should have. Um, I guess, you know, Trump will just have to run again for office in 2024. Um, Are there any, I mean, I guess the lawsuit, the Dominion lawsuit is real set of consequences for um, organizations blindly following this stuff. And, and, uh, and, but Maria Bartiromo, isn't she, like a trustee of NYU or something? Oh, you, you know, I, I'm not sure on that. I, I, I think that may be, may be correct, but, but I can't speak to it. Yeah, I mean, just the, this, the lack of consequences for this. I mean, what you did in writing this was sort of humanize um, the, I, I don't know, addiction, the, the, the delusion, but also you know, make clear how powerful it is and that people who are in positions of authority who who uh, spread it um, should be held accountable. Seems clearer and clearer. Yeah, certainly. I mean, you know, it, it is a, a sort of difficulty of the American system. Of course, we love our First Amendment and our free speech, but it, but it also provides a safe harbor for people to spread these conspiracy theories. You know, I'm not talking about some random person online. I mean, I'm talking about someone like Michael Flynn, for example, the former Trump national security advisor, who has been a huge promoter of QAnon. And when I talk to people whose relatives have been sucked into QAnon, they point to him often and say, you know, this is a guy who's clearly making money off of this, and we know he doesn't believe it, uh, but he's more than happy to help recruit more people into it. Um, or someone like Donald Trump, who posts uh, frequently about QAnon and posts QAnon memes of himself. And unfortunately for the deluded people who believe in QAnon, they look at that and they don't see a politician sort of cynically preparing for the Republican primary. They see, you know, the proof that, uh, that QAnon is real. Yeah, I mean, Sidney Powell admits under oath, yeah, this was nonsense, right? And and we're seeing in the Fox papers, a lot of uh, that have been made public from this lawsuit, a lot of them didn't believe it. And they, they said it anyways, the cynical lies. But what you've shown me is that you could depose under oath a whole lot of these QAnon followers, and they would swear to their last breath that it's all true. Absolutely. I mean, you know, we saw after January 6th, a lot of the QAnon believers involved in that, they would talk to the FBI and say, yeah, well, you know, I, I was working for QAnon and uh, I'm sure you guys know all about that. You know, that that is, you, you know, being in the FBI, you guys must know how, how QAnon's real. And soon there's going to be this big moment and all that. And these FBI agents think, you know, what is this guy talking about? <laughs> are you, are, do you have a, has your book like, do, do you have a deal with Hollywood to make the movie? Because it would be a great movie. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think there's a lot of, um, you know, we have the top level kind of political issues, but we also have a lot of stories, you know, there are a lot of stories in the book 
um, that I think really flesh this out and flesh out the, the victims and the, the perpetrators. And, you know, there's a, there's a plot where a woman plots to kidnap her kid because she's so deep into QAnon and sort of flees into the, in the QAnon underground of America that I, I think a lot is sort of like a Coen Brothers movie. Um, and it mm-hmm. all culminates with a murder. So, I mean, it really is. Uh, there, there, are some, there are some great stories for folks to read about, for sure. They're great stories. And I just think this is a, this is a, I mean, in, uh, it, you, you hear me struggling for the words. I know what I want to say. I just hate having to say it. But this is a mirror to, uh, that your book tells us a lot about who we are. I mean, I just hate to admit it, but it tells us a lot about who we are because these are our neighbors. These are these are people, you know, some of them are people we all know. And it's an enormous chunk of our population. Well, well, thank you. Um, you, you know, that's what I was trying to do. I mean, I, I, one of the, the goals I had with the book was making clear to people who I think there's a natural human instinct to look away from this and to and to minimize it and to say, well, that's just a couple of weirdos online. Um, but I think when you read the book, you you have to acknowledge that um, you know this is this conspiracy theory movement in America, whether it's QAnon or or goes by another name, is it's just it's rampant and and we have to face it. I mean, we're talking about Marjorie Taylor Greene, for example, who's one of the most powerful members of Congress. Uh, you know, this is someone who is a hardcore QAnon believer. You know, I think only once we start understanding what they believe and why they believe it, can we work on solving it. Um, what's your sense of the role of social media in the uh, in the spread of this um, worldview? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think QAnon could exist without social media. Uh, you know, in the past, we had these, you know, there were certainly conspiracy theories, but it, it was a lot harder for people to find to find them and for people to find those who agreed with them. I mean, I think before the Internet, someone, if you had a wacky idea, I think everyone in your life would say you were wrong and you'd have to work pretty hard to find people who agreed with you. But now, you know, if you're sitting around the dinner table and saying, you know, I think Barack Obama is going to be arrested next week. You know, if your parents tell you you're crazy, you can just pull up your phone and find a whole community of people who not only will affirm you and give you new ideas uh, to add to that one, but will say, well, we're your new family. You know, you, you don't need those those uh, simpletons. You know, we're going to save the world together. And I think often in these cases where QAnon really makes someone go off the rails, you hear these stories about suddenly this person spending all their time online. They're obsessed with QAnon. Because for someone who believes this, I mean, if you think about what, what's laid out there, I mean, if you believe that, you really will do anything because it, it just suggests this really urgent situation. I mean, you have to save the children, as they say. Yeah, I had about a year ago, I had someone on this show who was an expert in the path to radicalization that went on, you know, a couple decades ago in parts of the Middle East that where, where, um, you know, in the rise of ISIS and the, the techniques that they talked about sound an awful lot like what you're talking about, where people would go online and they would find people who would befriend them. And then they would, you know, give them a sort of an idea to test. And if they liked it, they would go a little deeper and then they would, add, you know, I mean, it, it really is a, a path to radicalization. 
Yeah, I think there are a lot of similarities. I mean, as you say, I mean, isolating people from their families, giving them a mission, giving, you know, someone a place in, you know, often our day-to-day lives can feel so mundane. Uh, then you come to someone and, and you know, believers call themselves soldiers. And so the idea that suddenly, you know, you're not just a random person with a nine to five job, uh, you're, you're saving the children. You're a warrior for God, or, or at least for Donald Trump. Uh, and so, you know, it, it, it really fills people with that same sense of mission that I think, unfortunately, they often get from terrorist groups. Well, and yeah, and QAnon members apparently make up a big part of the, what the uh, FBI warns us is right wing. Uh, terror cells in the U.S. So they're definitely related. Um, I, I wonder if you see any, you know, any cure, any path out. Yeah, I mean, I think for for, for the individual QAnon believer, I think it, it can be very difficult. I mean, I, often, you know, the, the best hope is to get them offline, just to sort of show them that there is a world beyond QAnon and beyond posting on these forums. Uh, and beyond, uh, you know, supporting Donald Trump. But I, I think for the country more broadly, I, I think the sad news is that this conspiracy theory mania will be with us for a long time. I think um, there's just, it's been very persistent. And, you know, we, we've seen this take forms in the past, and then it became QAnon, and now it might stay QAnon or it might become something else. But I think in terms of the way out, I mean, at best, I think we can improve the social safety net. I, so often when I talk to QAnon believers, it's become a, because of some medical debt or some other issue that emerged out of nowhere and just threw them for a loop. Um, and and that, that's what drives them to Q&A mm-hmm. now. Of course, that's – go ahead. No, I'm, I'm just stunned. I wasn't, didn't mean to interrupt. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, that, that, that's, that's sort of my, my very gentle uh, attempt at a solution, which is, you know, uh, maybe improving America more broadly. I think fewer people will fall into that. Yeah. Yeah. So again, they, I think they properly diagnose the state they're in, but their solutions will only make them worse. Um, you know, I've told this story uh, on this show before. So if listeners forgive me, but I want to, uh, will tell you, I, I went to, um, I took a trip and one of the places I visited was the concentration camp of Buchenwald in what was East Germany. And I was there two weeks after the Berlin wall fell. And I got a tour from the person who'd been giving tours of this camp for years. And she was visibly uh, upset and angry. And I asked her about that because I thought, you know, it was just moving. And she said she was furious at the lies she has told for most of her career giving those tours because only in the days after the wall fell did she see the documents that were hidden from her about what actually went on in that camp. Um, and she'd been telling everybody, oh, the, you know, the proud communists, the Nazis were just here to destroy the communists. And that's what this was. And then she got a broader history and she was furious with the people who had sold her the lies. And I wonder whether Americans, when the blinders start to fall, will be furious with the people who um, encouraged them to continue to live in these um, these weird corners of reality. You know, it's, it's an interesting question. Uh, you know, I, I hope so. Um, we'll have to see. I mean, I, I think people really, they invest so much of themselves into these conspiracy theories that even when it obviously becomes fake, it's very hard for them to pull out. Yeah. Well, this presents an enormous problem for 
our society and for our politics, for sure. Um, um, and I, I would not suggest for those of you who are on the progressive left and listening, the answer is not to find some counter fantasy on the other side. The answer is to help mm-hmm. our fellow Americans get out of this ditch that they found themselves in. Absolutely. Well, well, uh, really appreciate your time today. And for those, <clears throat> excuse me, for those of you who are listening, trust the plan, the rise of QAnon and the conspiracy that unhinged America. Um, uh, read it before it becomes a, a fantastic Hollywood success. <laughs> uh, Will, thank you. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Okay, everybody, we're going to take a break and um, uh, I'm going to talk to Steve Sheffy uh, about democracy uh, and what's going on in Israel as it relates sort of to what's going on here. As soon as we get back, uh, stay tuned. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Well, I I just thought that conversation with Will Summer was fascinating and frightening. And I guess I'm going to take a a risk here. You know, I'm going to take calls from listeners, as I always do, in about an hour uh, at 773-763-9278. And look, if you are a QAnon soldier, um, call in and uh, tell them when they answer that that's who you are, um, because I, I'm, I just I want to understand y- your view a little bit more. So if if you are a Q soldier, call in 773-763-9278 in about an hour. Um, uh, but right now, I want to turn to. The fight for democracy, which turns out to be a global fight. You know, we have people um, fighting repression, certainly everywhere, including on the streets in Tehran. That's not exactly a fight for democracy, but a fight against repression. Same thing in Mexico City, where they are fighting to um, improve the limited democracy uh, there. Um, And in Israel, where um, uh, you have had in the boundaries of of Israel proper, a, a real democracy for a long time. Now it's under uh, th- threat. And I wanted to understand that better. So I asked Steve Sheffy, who has been active in both Democratic and Jewish politics for 30 years, uh, to come on the show. He has a weekly newsletter, the Chicago Pro-Israel Political Update. And we had a chance to catch up yesterday. Take a listen to this conversation. Look, um, we, we've spent time on this show talking about the fight for and against democracy around the world. And the news from Israel is simultaneously terrible and encouraging. The Netanyahu government is aggressively working to destroy the country's independent judiciary, something we've talked about in the context of the U.S. Supreme Court here. Alexander Hamilton warned us it was a sure path to tyranny. But a huge portion of Israel's population has taken to the streets in sustained protest. And I guess it's not clear in this moment who will prevail. And I'd love you to give us sort of background on the fight and what it looks like. 
Well, thank you very much. Um, and I am confident that democracy will prevail. The same reason I'm confident that democracy in the United States will prevail. There's an authoritarian element, as you know, within the United States as well. The people who support Trump, the MAGA Republicans. And what matters is not that everyone supports democracy, but that just enough people support democracy. What's going on in Israel with the demonstrations week after week is the equivalent of 4.2 million Americans out in the street week after week. The demonstrations are huge. Um, Members of the military and intelligence community in Israel are speaking out. Um, It is very, very encouraging. What we have to remember is that Unlike the United States, you know, we have a system of checks and balances, and it's theoretically possible, and in fact, we're seeing it right now, for Congress to be controlled by one party, the presidency by another party. Israel is a parliamentary democracy where one party controls everything. So there are no checks and balances like there are in the United States. And if Israel doesn't have an independent judiciary, there are no checks and balances at all. And these, I don't like calling these things judicial reforms. What's going on in Israel is either a judicial overhaul or a judicial coup that would effectively allow a majority vote of the Knesset to overrule a Supreme Court decision in Israel. Now, to be clear, Israel's judicial system does need reform, just like our judicial system probably needs reform. But Netanyahu's government has gone way, way beyond that. It's very anti-democratic. It's authoritarian. It's very risky. And I think I, I agree with you. I take great solace and confidence from the fact that so many Israelis are speaking out and demonstrating. Why is Netanyahu's current coalition government um, uh, undermining the judiciary in this way? Well, I think there are several reasons, and no one can say for certain. One is that they just don't like the fact that Decisions they make can be overruled by the Supreme Court. Um, you know, that's, they, it's a very right-wing government that includes some members who I think could accurately be described as racists and worse in the government, and they don't like having that check on them. In addition, you know, one of the things that Netanyahu wants to do is avoid going to jail, and it might be possible to pass laws that would protect him. Basically, they want free reign. Um, it's what we would call tyranny of the majority is what they want. But the difference there, again, is, you know, the Knesset, Israel's parliament, the ruling government is put together by a coalition. And that the policies of that coalition do not necessarily represent the policies that even a majority of the Knesset would prefer if they had their choice, let alone a majority of Israelis. I mean, safe to say, you know, whether we like it or not, the fact is, More than 50% of voters in the United States voted Republican for the House of Representatives. And we might not like what's going on in Congress, but that's kind of what the people chose. In Israel, the majority of Israel's public does not like giving subsidies to the ultra-Orthodox. But in order to have a coalition, you have to make deals with small parties. So it's a very weird system. And if you don't have the check of the Supreme Court... um, Results that reflect the views of a minority of the people of Israel or that are anti-democratic have come to pass. So that's why so many people are speaking out against this judicial overhaul that the government is proposing. Yeah, I mean, these protests are enormous, and they're not one-off. They've been going on now for some time. 
Yes, at least 10 weeks um, in all the major cities, Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, Haifa. And again, as I said before, it's as if imagine 4.2 million Americans demonstrating week after week. That's the same percentage of the Israeli population. It's extremely significant um, what's going on there. And so in some units of Israel, you know, Israel has a very strong ethos of volunteer military service for obvious reasons, because they are beset by enemies on all sides. Reservists are threatening not to volunteer for reserve duty. Um, pilots are threatening not to fly. Um, there's a lot of stuff going on in Israel, and I think that speaks very well for democracy. We have to remember that just like the United States is not a monolith, neither is Israel. Imagine how you would have reacted if someone from a foreign country said to you, you guys elected Donald Trump. You guys are terrible. You would have said, well, I didn't vote for Trump, and a lot of Americans don't like Trump. It's the same thing there. Uh, a lot of Israelis are very upset with, with what's going on, and they're speaking up. This government does not represent all of Israel. It represents some of Israel, but not all of Israel. Yep. All right. Well, I am um, uh, encouraged by the um, insistence of the protesters, by their persistence, and by the sheer size of the um, uh standing up to this uh, authoritarian um, push from Netanyahu. But let me turn to another sort of disturbing um, aspect of life over there. We've seen escalating violence in Israel and the West Bank, undermining the possibility of a two-state solution. And an Israeli general, I don't even want to say his name, called the actions of some of the settlers um, in the it, well, an Israeli general actually I like it called the actions of some of the settlers uh, in a village, uh, an Arab village of Huwara. He used the word pogrom to describe the way those settlers were, uh, their behavior. Um, and uh, contrast that with Netanyahu's finance minister, who said the town should be wiped off the map using rhetoric that the U.S. State Department then called disgusting. These are huge divisions. Yes, they are huge divisions. And I would add that what the finance minister said was even worse because he said the state should wipe it off the map, not individuals. In other words, he was advocating for government-sponsored violence against people, which is obviously a huge problem. But again, what you just said highlights what we were just talking about. You've got people in Israel speaking out. Yes, the, the general you quoted was not just any general. It was the general who was in charge of safety and security on the West Bank. And yeah. for him to call what the settlers did a pogrom was a very major pronouncement, because it was. And it was completely unacceptable. Um, there's a lot of lawlessness going on. And what's going on, and, and to be clear, there's also violence and terrorism against Israelis as well. I mean, Israelis have been killed by terrorists. It's going on. It's a terrible situation there. It's unacceptable from both sides for there to be this type of violence going on. But for a finance, for someone actually in the government to condone that type of settler violence is unacceptable. It is disgusting, especially the language you use, suggesting that the, that the state itself should engage in it. And what goes to highlight is we really have a problem. It is going to push a two-state solution. The more violent that this violence occurs, and this is what Biden's State Department's been saying over and over again, we can, on both sides, we have to make sure that neither side takes steps that would push a, a two-state solution further out of reach. Because the only way for Israel to remain Jewish and democratic 
And the only way for Palestinians to live in dignity with a state of their own is to have a two-state solution. That's the only viable option left. It's probably not possible now, but that's why neither side should take steps that would make it unlikely in the future. And unfortunately, the opposite's happening now. Well, um, this combination of attacking the judiciary and nodding at um, state-sponsored violence creates, for the first time that I can remember, real pushback from within the American Jewish community. Um, and that uh, um, that's a dynamic I don't I haven't seen really before, and I wonder what you think about that. I think you're right. I think also it's a difference of degree. There have always been some elements of the American Jewish community and some organizations that have seen these risks and have been speaking out for a long time. What's changing now is some of the more mainstream organizations, to varying degrees, are speaking out. Now, the extreme right-wing Jewish organizations are trying to rationalize and defend the actions of Israel's government. But for the most part, you're seeing a lot of what I would call legacy Jewish organizations speaking out to a certain extent. Um, Many of them are objecting to the judicial coup, pointing out the dangers to Israel's democracy, because they realize that the U.S.-Israel relationship is based on shared values. You know, there are shared strategic interests, but strategic interests can come and go. Um, The main interest the main reason for a strong U.S.-Israel relationship is the shared values, and at the extent that Israel's government is acting in a way that shows it doesn't share those values, that's going to weaken the U.S.-Israel relationship, and it's clearly a problem, as it is even for its own sake a problem. What you're not seeing quite as much of is mainstream Jewish organizations in America speaking out against settlement annexation, uh, settlement expansion and creeping annexation. And those are also threats to Israel's democracy. They're a different kind of threat, but at some point, you know, the only argument that Israel is still a democracy today is that the West Bank is not part of Israel. No reasonable person would expect a temporary occupation to grant voting rights to the citizens who are occupied to the temporary. And the theory of a temporary occupation is you, you solve the problem, you withdraw, And that's that. But the more the occupation looks permanent, the more Israel continues to build settlement after settlement, the more it legalizes previously illegal outposts, even under Israeli law, the more the occupation begins to look permanent. And if the occupation is permanent, it's a legitimate question to ask, why doesn't everyone get to vote um, to choose the government that is running the affairs of the area? And that's an almost impossible question to answer at some point, and then Israel loses its democracy. So I think it's really important, while it's great that people, and I mean that seriously, it is great that so many people are speaking out against the judicial overhaul. I think more Jewish organizations need to speak out against settlement expansion and creeping annexation. I mean, Israel was founded to be a Jewish state, a homeland for the Jewish people after the horrors of of World War II. But a homeland for the Jewish people is a, is a place where the Jewish people are a majority. Would the Israelis... Uh, uh, you're saying there's a faction in Israel that is comfortable 
creating an Israel where Jews are not a majority and then uh, ruling by force? Well, it seems to be. I mean, I don't know if they've thought this through or if they don't care. But I know what you say is exactly right. Um, you asked, how could a state be Jewish and democratic well, and grant equal rights to everyone? The only way for that to happen is with an overwhelming Jewish majority. And there is an overwhelming Jewish majority in pre-1967 Israel. Um, and in pre-1967 Israel, Arabs vote. Um, Arabs serve in the Knesset. Arabs are on the Supreme Court. It, it really, it, now, it's not a perfect democracy. There's racism, just as there is in the United States. But legally, everyone, it's, it's a democracy. On the other hand, in the West Bank, only Jews who live in the West Bank get to vote in Israel's elections, not Palestinians who live in the West Bank. And if you, if, if, if Israel annexes parts of the West Bank, or if as a practical matter they annex it, um, that's what we talk about in the increasing annexation, then you have a situation where Israel has a choice. You let everyone vote in which case Jews are either a bare majority or a very large minority, or you don't let any of everyone vote, in which case you're not a democracy anymore, although you're Jewish. Although I would argue, I wonder just how, quote-unquote, Jewish a state really is that doesn't grant equal rights to everyone. If you read Israel's Declaration of Independence, it's very clear about granting equal rights to everyone, Jew and non-Jew alike. So that's, that's a real problem, but you've got this strong... Now, this is not just in Israel. It's going throughout the whole world, including our country, by the way. Let's not forget, there are people in the United States who are not comfortable with democracy. There are people in the United States who try to overturn the result of the uh, 2020 election. They stormed the Capitol, engaged in tremendous violence, rioting, killing police officers. And then hours after that insurrection occurred, 147 Republicans nevertheless voted to overturn the election. I mean, we've got a problem in our country, too. So it's not as if it's weak. And I think part of the reason so many Jewish organizations understand the risk or are coming to understand the risk is that we've seen in our own country how fragile democracy can be. And we've seen in our own country how appealing authoritarianism is to some segments of the population. No, no, no yeah. one's immune from it. Democracy is hard work no, no. no matter where you live. That's right. I mean, and this is a show about American democracy. Um, and the reason we talk about Israel or Mexico, for that matter, um, is that the fights for and against democracy around the world share certain similar elements. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Did you see, um, I think it was this week, um, Jan Schakowsky circulated a dear colleague letter related to the events um, uh, in Israel. Yes, I did. Not only did I see it, and what a, what a setup for a plug. Um, I actually included the text of the letter in my weekly newsletter um, last week, which if anyone wants to sign up, it's steve at steveshefi.com. Very easy address, steve at steveshefi.com. Put down the list. But um, yes, I did see the letter. I thought it was excellent because the letter was very clear that it proved that it's possible to support Israel, to support a strong U.S.-Israel relationship, and at the same time, speak out for the values that bind our country. At the same time, to speak out in favor of democracy and to point out the concerns we have with Israel's proposed judicial overhaul. 
at the same time to speak out against creepy annexation, against settlements. A grand total of not when I last week when I circulated my inclusive letter, I think there were 46 signers. It wound up with 92. And uh, I'm from Illinois. I, I hope I don't miss anyone, but I know Jan Schakowsky was on the letter. Sean Caston was on the letter. Pretty sure Danny Davis was. Pretty sure Truly Garcia was. There may have been other. There were others who I'm probably not thinking of. But it was a, a very good, very strong letter, and it's very important. And Jerry Nadler was on the letter. Nadler is the longest-serving Jewish member of Congress whose district includes more Jews than any other district in the country. So it was a, a very good letter that attracted a good, uh, good cross-section of support from members of Congress. So I was very happy to see that letter, and that's important. But Jan did, what is- I mean, she's a classic example of how to model pro-Israel advocacy with our values. And what was she asking for? Well, she was basically asking, um, the letter was sent to President Biden. And it was thanking, you know, first it thanked Biden, it commended Biden. That was the word they used, commend. It commended Biden for, you know, his calls to de-escalate tensions in Israel and the West Bank to come out against violence. And also asked him to be mindful of the concerns that you and I have been talking about um, on this segment today, and she outlined it very well. It's a, a very good look. No, three, by the way, I should give credit to everyone. It wasn't, it was Congresswoman Schakowsky, also Rosa DeLauro, and Jim McGovern. Those were the three who led the letter, and yep. um, they got 89 people to sign on with them. I think there's a trip planned to the U.S. Um, by one of the leaders of the current uh, coalition government um, uh, in Israel. Uh, and it's it's very controversial. Can you talk about that? Yes, it is. Um, the finance minister, Smotrich, he's the person you referred to earlier, mm-hmm. who was the one who said that the state should wipe the village off the map. And he is coming to visit. He's a finance minister, and he's coming to Israel to visit um, a conference being held by Israel Bonds. This happens. Um, it's not unusual at all for Israel Bonds to invite the finance minister. I mean, obviously, that's who they work with. They always invite the finance minister over. There was Some people didn't want the Biden administration to even give Smotrich a visa. Looks like they are going to give him a visa. Um, he is a, you know, a member of a government that's an ally. But many, many Jewish groups have said that they will not meet with him. And, in fact, other than Bonds, and I think they're going to have a private meeting with him, I'm not sure if any Jewish or I certainly I mean, I'm going to be watching for it. We should all watch for it. But I certainly hope that no Jewish organization will meet with him or give him a platform because he doesn't represent our values at all. Um, not at all. And I think this is one way to send a signal, an important signal that those types of he just doesn't represent what we stand for. Yeah. Uh, but it well, is controversial and it should be controversial. As, as usual, I'm very appreciative of your time and, and particularly today's conversation because it gets at how people who care about democracy have similar concerns in very different countries around the world and how we can and should support each other to protect um, this, this institution, this way of living together that we value so much. 
And that's exactly that is you. And this is exactly the best way to end this, because that's right. Some people say, well, why? How could you support Israel anymore? Why can we do this? I mean, Israel still faces legitimate threats. The answer is not to sever ties with Israel. The answer is for us to support the Israelis marching in the streets to show our solidarity across borders with the people who support democracy. That's the answer. You know, strengthen institutions in Israel that are fighting for the causes that we believe in. You know, that's what we need to do. Um, and that we do have allies there. And there are organizations in the U.S. and Israel that do those sorts of things. That's what we should be doing is really, you know, to be a pro-Israel, in my view, means to stand up with the Israelis who view, who share our values. Stand up with the Israeli reservists who are saying they won't volunteer if this judicial overhaul goes through. Stand up with the people demonstrating week after week. Do whatever we can. If we're fortunate enough to be able to do so, donate money to the organizations in Israel fighting for what we believe in, or the organizations here. And maybe don't give as much to the organizations in the United States that are engaging in counterproductive activities. But I think you hit the nail on the head. We have to stand in solidarity with each other in the United States and across borders. Thank you, Steve. As always, it's great to catch up. We will talk again soon. My pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Steve Sheffy, uh, he has this regular newsletter. He's a very interesting guy, and he is, uh, you know, both pro-Israel and and American uh Democrats at the same time, but as you can as you can hear, um, perfectly willing uh, to criticize the behavior of the Netanyahu government um, because he doesn't believe uh, that breaking the democracy there is a sustainable thing. And um, th- these are fights that we're having all around the world. And look, the the, the lessons, and I take this from from sort of all of the guests today. <clears throat> institutions matter. You know, uh, independent judiciary matters. It's been compromised here in the U.S. Uh, at our Supreme Court, uh, courtesy of years of uh, the Federalist Society trying to capture the court, and they did. Um, really dangerous for us. Um, uh, schools matter. And and schools that, as, as you heard Jennifer Bercher talk about, schools that don't just do the work of corporate training departments, but that educate uh, young Americans for the world they're going to live in and give them the tools and the and the, really the power to navigate the world, the, the changing world that they grow up in. They matter. <clears throat> they're also like our courts under attack, under vicious attack in some states. Um, regulatory bodies matter. Uh, and, and we know this when, when they get, um, bullied into not doing their job. We have things like this terrible train wreck in uh, Ohio or the bank failure that we just saw in California. And I mean, that bank failure is the result, well, of many things. I mean, the banks are risky and, and, but, but we've done our best because of their important role in our economy to shield them from some of their worst instincts by requiring capital requirements that will help them deal with, uh, you know, sort of the liquidity pressures that happen. This particular bank, um, you know, uh, lobbied the Trump administration um, uh, uh, to, to sort of 
lower that liquidity requirement. Um, and they weren't stress tests by the Fed as the big banks were, you know, so, so, uh, regulatory bodies matter and done well. They don't act as a drain on our economy or our society, but they keep us safe. They set rules that keep us safe. And you know, another institution matters, journalism. And here, the biggest example of that is what happens when you pretend to be a journalist and you're not. That would be Maria Bartiromo and the folks at Fox drinking the Q juice, knowing it's a lie and pretending it's journalism, right? Courts, schools, regulatory bodies, journalism, all of this stuff matters. We have to build the institutions of our democracy together. We have to protect them together and we have to know who we are, right? As opposed to the fantasy spewing nonsense. Um, we're going to take a break for the news. When I come back, um, Michael Tomaski is going to join us. And that is something you don't want to miss. You're looking at the big picture with Edwin Eisentraft on WCPT 820. Okay, a little after three o'clock here in the upper Midwest. And now I'm joined by Michael Tomaski. He's the editor of the New Republic and the online journal Democracy. He is, as I hope most of you know, a, I want to say, a perennially influential progressive thinker and author. We last spoke on this show in May. And at that time, I asked him about the changing post Cold War global economic order and how we might rethink things to better benefit working Americans. And he told me, it's funny you should ask, I am about to come out with a book on that topic. And sure enough, the middle out is now available, has been for a bit, and it makes the case for a new middle class economics. Michael, thank you for joining me again. Happy to be back. I'm really glad you wrote that book um, because, well, for lots of reasons, but for for the political part of my brain, I just think the best way we overcome the current autocratic threat is by delivering on the promise of prosperity for our people. Exactly right. 100%. History shows that people turn to demagogues and, and so on when there's a lot of anxiety, chiefly economic anxiety, when, when they don't feel stable and secure uh, and when things are unsettled. Uh, you know, obviously, the situation in Germany in 1932 springs to mind first. But, uh, you know, there are many other examples throughout history less extreme than that that show that when there's a when there's a lot of economic anxiety and you don't have a stable middle class, that's when voting populations turn to extreme extremist demagogues. So delivering for middle and working class people, showing that you can bring them Security and stability and a better life is the surest way to block that from happening. Um, earlier in the show, I talked to uh, the journalist Will Summer, who wrote the book Trust the Plan, the Rise of uh, the QAnon and Conspiracy that Unhinged America. And he made the point that the common thread of all these QAnon believers that he met and interviewed hundreds and hundreds of people was um, this their, their economic challenge and the sense that America was not um, had somehow changed the rules on them. They didn't have the economic opportunity 
that they thought they had when they were children. Yeah, uh, that's right. And you know, Will, I know Will. Will's a former colleague, and he's a terrific reporter, and that's a great book. Uh, so I would believe everything he says. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, you know, I mean, this is this is what's happened in in this country over the last. 40 years, and, and, you know, it's been mostly led by Republicans because Republicans have been the big cheerleaders for this, you know, no rules, uh, free market, you know, um, uh, no regulations, let's reward the 1% uh, kind of economy. Uh, But Democrats haven't stood against it nearly as strongly as they ought to have uh, and have endorsed certain aspects of it uh, under both the Clinton and Obama administrations. Um, so, you know, uh, it's, it's a situation where, uh, you know, the American dream, you know, to use the shorthand, however one wants to define that, you know, the belief that things are going to get better, the belief that, that, you know, you can, you can rise and that your children are going to do better than you, uh, is, uh, is attenuated, is, is in trouble, is, is strangled, is, is just vaporized for a lot of people. Uh, I see Biden trying to change that in ways that uh, uh, I find very heartening. But, you know, he's not going to do it with uh, that guy as the Speaker of the House. No, that's certainly not going to help. Look, there's a before I get into like Biden and the politics of it, there's a vision of America, an old um, liberal idea, not American liberal, like John Locke idea that claims our natural rights are life, liberty, and property. And it's a view that's animated a whole bunch of our history, not always in a good way. It's sort of what made it possible for people to claim allegiance both to democracy and freedom and slavery at the same time. Um, right. And it, I think, is animates the trickle-down world today. But you're part of a different tradition, one that argues – I guess, I don't know whether it argues that Locke meant something different or that he should have meant something different, but that you think that when instead of property, you think economic justice. And that is a, that's a real sort of fundamental and important difference. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, it's really interesting and I think instructive to think of, think of things in these kinds of historical terms. And I write about John Locke in my book and I write about Adam Smith and, and, and some of the people who came after them. Uh, and it's interesting, Ed, that you use the word liberal to describe Locke. What he said was extremely liberal in his time, the late 1600s. Right. Uh, but it's conservatives who revere him today because he can generally be seen as endorsing, you know, uh, the individual, the right to the individual to be left alone uh, and uh, and not to be intruded upon by the state. In his time, he meant the king, you know, an oppressive king, and he had a specific king in mind. In fact, mm-hmm. I forget which one. It's in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, and he had to flee England for a while. He was such a he, there was such a you know target on his back. Um, yep. So so he he meant the king, but conservatives today mean, of course, the the liberal state, the the deep state, the the big oppressive you know many tentacled you know federal government and all that stuff. Um, so, uh, but his tradition of of individualism and freedom from state intrusion uh, really uh, has very, very deep roots in this country. 
the tradition that I want to be a part of that that you correctly noted uh, is uh, has has left deep roots. It, it goes back. You know, there are there are communal or state interventionist. Uh, uh, eruptions in in the United States going back to the very beginning, and uh, you know Alexander Hamilton and the National Bank, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, that the, the tradition that we're a part of was really only fully and finally articulated in the 1930s by, of course, Franklin Roosevelt, and and that's that's the tradition that that we're trying to build on, and that I think Biden is trying to build on. I do too, and I, you know, and there are people in the Democratic Party who um, are very uncomfortable with it. I mean, Larry Summers comes to mind. I don't, you know, he never says he wants to undo uh, the New Deal, but it's very hard to get to a place where we properly regulate, where we um, uh, uh, provide real on ramps to people into our economy. If you think about. Uh, economics the way he does. Yeah, so this is called uh, neoliberalism, and uh, again, that's a, a confusing term to a lay person because it's it's not really liberalism the way the way you think of like MSNBC. You know, neoliberalism is is basically a kind of conservatism, and and I explain the roots of all this language in my book, and and uh, you know, neoliberal economics uh, is associated with people like Milton Friedman. Uh, who, who uh, I'm sorry about my dog. There's nothing I can do. Somebody's coming. To Never me. apologize for a good dog. We're <laughs> just gonna have to let it roll. Uh, yep. But you know, so it, it's like this. It, the United States was a laissez-faire economy from the founding until 1932-33. Then Roosevelt adopted Keynesian principles of a more interventionist economy, more public expenditure, uh, you know, to boost the economy at a time when the private sector was down. Uh, that held sway through the 1970s. Eisenhower and Nixon, the two Republican presidents of that period, declared themselves Keynesians. Uh, then we had these crises in the 70s, the OPEC oil crisis and the inflation crisis and deindustrialization, and it all combined to uh, expose, say, the Achilles heel of, of the Keynesian formulas. And people like Friedman and other free marketeers, uh, Arthur Laffer, came along and said, aha, you see, that's all a failure. you got to get the government out of the way. And that's been the reigning economic ideology of this country uh, really ever since. Uh, yeah. Clinton and Obama fought that in, in, in certain respects. I think, I think like, in some ways, Clinton and Obama get a bad rap today, uh, particularly from younger people, because they did fight that in, in a certain sense. But, but basically, uh, most policy experts, most economists, Democratic as well as Republican, your you know, your mention of Summers uh, and people like Bob Rubin uh, mm-hmm. kind of bought into those principles and yep. Uh, yep. and you know it's only now changing and it's and it's been changing in the economics profession for the last fifteen years or so and um, you know I won't mention my book in every answer I promise you but I, I think the the chapter of my book that I'm proudest of is is the one that talks about that these changes in the economic pr- profession that I think I write in a way that is is accessible for for lay readers. Yep. And it's really it, it's history that's important. Um, but you know, we we we've been talking about economics, but I think your view and this is also I mean it sounds old school, but I think it's fair. The the era of 
tax and regulatory cuts was, I think, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but a failure both of economics and of our moral compass. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, I mean, just just look at what's happened. The, the, the transfer of wealth in this country over the last 40 years from people in the middle to people at the very top. This is something nobody notices. This is something most Democrats don't spend much time talking about. I wish they would. I wish more of them would. Even Bernie Sanders doesn't talk about this that much. But yeah, like there was a, there was a study by the Rand Corporation, very respected, you know, hardly screaming liberal outfit, uh, in 2020 uh, that found that 50 trillion dollars of wealth has been transferred from the middle class to the people at the very, very top, not just the 1%, but like the 0.1% uh, over the last 40 years. And and that if uh, our economic policies today were the same as they were in the 1970s and had remained the same that whole time, uh, most of that wealth would not have been transferred. And and the median uh, uh, individual income today, uh, instead of being uh, well, not today, but in 2020, um, when the study came out, instead of being around thirty six thousand dollars or so, would have been around fifty six thousand um, dollars. That's a pretty big difference. It's a heartbreaking um, look at the decisions that were made because the consequences have been so dangerous for America and for the whole world, really, um, yeah. because when we're unhinged, we do some pretty awful things. Um, I, I, look, I'm, I guess I'm a capitalist. You know, I, I'm convinced that f- free markets are the best way to gather and share information. I don't know a better way, but markets need regulation in order to stay free because winners at every, any given moment seek monopolies and because there are enormous non-economic values that must be protected. I mean, from consumer safety to, I don't know, the planet. So I, I, I see the right-wing view of markets today as more corporate protectionism than something that, you know, you would call truly free. And in that sense, um, oh, I don't know. Do you, have a, do you think that's right, or do you have a sort of more critical view of the idea of markets themselves? I mean, I'm a capitalist too. You know, markets, markets. Uh, you know, uh, capitalism allows people to innovate, and and innovation is great. Innovation solves a lot of problems, um, and uh, in a, in ways that that you know, uh, non-market economies just just can't solve. Uh, and um, and you know, I, I I love going to the store and seeing all these choices that we have as much as the next person. Um, mm-hmm. And all that kind of thing, um, but there's a point at which the values of capitalism are at odds with the values of democracy. Uh, you know, the values of democracy are, uh, you know, not that we all end up equal. You know, nobody thinks a, a custodian should make what a cardiac surgeon makes, but but that there is political equality in our society. And, and that and that the rich do not dominate the country politically, because that's not democracy. That's all it no. And no. that's no. what we're creeping toward today in this country, if not if indeed we're not already there. The values of democracy are 
you know, equality of opportunity and and political equality and and a guarantee that we all have certain rights uh, that we can count on. Uh, the values of capitalism are to sort winners and losers and, and to defenestrate losers and, and banish them and, and to reward winners uh, uh, endlessly. And those are going to clash at some point. And, you know, one yeah. of the clear examples of this is the public schools and the, and the way that uh, people like Betsy DeVos uh, tried to impose market values on public schools. Well, I'm sorry. No, they're at odds. You can't do that. And, and you know, kids are going to get left behind. And, and we know which kids are going to get left behind. Uh, it doesn't work. These voucher programs, you know, they've studied them to death. They haven't done anything particularly different. You know, yeah. They haven't improved outcomes. And we began this show today with a long conversation with uh, Professor Jennifer Bircher on that very topic, and it was fabulous. Uh, and you could not, you're absolutely right. You, you, you sound to me, there's a philosopher named John Rawls who sort of says, justice is when you design a society so that you don't know, you know, which person you're going to be born as. Anybody could be any, randomly, any person right. could be born anywhere to any family. Design, design rules that you're comfortable with that and you're going to be okay. And, and, uh, that seems perfectly reasonable to me. Yeah, and that's well, that's why Rawls is you know the most important liberal political philosopher of the last half century, and and that's why conservatives and Republicans hate him so and twist his words. Um, mm-hmm. They they pervert Rawls's message into you know something like liberals want equality of of outcome, uh, which which nobody does. You know? Nobody does. Nobody says that. Nobody right. thinks that's realistic. Right. But yes, but we want a society where, where um, you know, people at the bottom uh, have, you know, some modicum, some bare minimum of, of provision and some bare minimum of opportunity, uh, and and have political equality. And and you know, we can't. We're not right. And hopes that aren't cruel lies, but that have some right. some actual. Yep. Yeah. So. so Let's go back to now Biden. I mean, I, I think the what's happening at the Federal Trade Commission, really interesting, you know, uh, yeah. sort of waking that sleepy organization up. And and the, the legislative efforts of the 117th Congress, certainly not the one that we're in now, um, right. but they will start to bear fruit in the next few years and, and may, um, just as you said in the title of your book, may help us grow the middle out a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it's an impressive list of things that, that they got done. And, you know, particularly to, to get in this day and age, uh, even a, a smattering of, of Republican votes in the Senate for things like the yep. Act and, and the Infrastructure Act is just really unbelievably impressive. And it shows you, it proves to me that their rhetoric aside about evil government and Marxism and this and that, you know, they know they know the value of a rebuilt bridge, um, <laughs> not just politically, not just politically, and they want to go cut the ribbon like anybody, uh, but not just politically. They know the value of it intrinsically, economically, substantively. You know, they know uh, they know when there's you know when. <laughs> They know when uh, their districts and states damn well. If there's one thing that politicians know, they know their states and districts. 
and yep. they know when when some project is going to really help things. And and so you know it's it's just really impressive that Biden got this stuff done uh, with those votes. And and yeah, I think we're going to see over the next few years. Um, as these projects uh, get completed, uh, we're going to see people, I hope, realizing uh, who got that done and who's responsible for that. You know, I mean, that's always a crapshoot. I mean, half the people don't even know that Medicare, the you know, Social Security is a government program. But, you know, uh, I hope that I hope that people will recognize this and connect these dots. Well, your raising how people know things is going to let me change the subject to um, journalism, I guess. You've been part of the world of Washington journalism for most of your career. Do you think the testimony we now have about Fox, Fox Cable, I can't call them news, um, is sufficient to finally maybe break their hold on America? You know, it should be. God knows it should be. Will it? Who knows? I mean, you know, people who, uh, uh, you know, accept that view of the world, you know, I mean, you're not going to, there's, there's no amount of statistics or facts uh, that are going to convince these people to take a different view of the world. So I don't know. You know, I mean, if Fox is discredited, they all might just move over to one American news network. I don't know. Yeah, they might. They might. But there's still a thing. I mean, should they, if you could like make the recommendation to the White House and they were going to do it, should they be removed from the White House press corps? Yeah, I, I mean, well, I think you know, so they too. probably can't do that until there's the, the until this the suit is is disposed of uh, one way or another. But if but if Fox is found liable, and then then you can easily go to the American people and say, this is not a news organization, you know, and and sorry, we're just not going to credit them anymore. Uh, I mean, the, yeah, and yeah, you know, I I also wish I wrote this recently at NewRepublic.com. Uh, that Democrats would just never go on their air again. I mean, I guess most Democrats probably don't anymore anyway, but I think they should just as a group announce a boycott. We're not going on this, this, on these, uh, on these people's airwaves. So certainly not as if it were a news organization. I mean, I mean, Hannity and Trump were talking about policy and politics on a regular basis, right? And now we know they gave, That makes him part of the administration. I I feel like, look, we know what the value of their show is because they sell ads. So we know what what a minute of the showtime is worth. I think all of it is an illegal campaign contribution um, uh, to the GOP and should be treated like that. Uh, yeah, no, I 100% agree. Uh, and you know, one of the things that came out in these Dominion documents is, uh, the, this one astonished me more than anything else in some ways, that Biden, Biden's ads that were running on Fox News, Rupert Murdoch himself, okay, not some flunky, not some intern who was over right. anxious, Rupert Murdoch himself leaked these to Jared Kushner before they aired. Uh, How much more blatant can you get? I I just think it's a, and it has actual political value. It should be treated as a campaign contribution, and they broke the law. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Again. I mean, there's just no question about it. It's just a scandal 
that that, that network exists and, and gets to use the First Amendment as cover for the things that it does. Oh, and the good news, I think, is that the right is wrong, um, that they've misunderstood America and they've misunderstood Americans, that we are a tolerant and accepting people, that we aren't afraid of books or ideas, that we actually loathe the kind of government coercion that we're seeing in Florida. Um, You know, I mean, I I just think the majorities that think they are wrong are going to grow and grow and grow. Um, If we can keep our democracy long enough to throw them out, we'll be fine. But, um, you know, they're, they're working hard to undermine the democracy itself. And they unfortunately, since they captured the Supreme Court, they have allies there. They do, but almost everything they stand for is unpopular. Uh, you know, if you go down issue by issue, you know, whether it's abortion or guns or, you know, protecting the rich from higher taxes or, you know, just any number of things, uh, their positions aren't popular. And yet, when it comes to generalities and abstractions, people still give them credit for certain things that they deserve no credit for. for like, for example, this is, this is one that really, really bugs me. People are asked, which party is better for the economy? People say Republicans all the time. Yeah, Every and they never have been. Yeah. And they've been a disaster in foreign policy. Yeah, yeah. And I, mean, I guess people say that because they're the party of business, and people just figure, well, if business likes them, they must be good for the economy. But, you know, if you compare the actual numbers of jobs created under Democratic administration versus Republican, even the stock market performance, uh, 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 attacking the deficit, it's just not even close. The numbers of Democrats are far, far, far better. Again, the Democrats' fault. Nobody in America knows this, uh, and they should be saying it a lot more than they say it. Uh, We got really good economic news again this week. What? Really good. Yeah, we should, yeah, really yeah. good. We're good, really good. So you know, Republicans' individual positions aren't popular, but people still somehow think of them as the party of business, the party of the economy, the party of a tough foreign policy. Uh, you know, and the, you know, George W. Bush's war did more to weaken this country than and strengthen our many things. And Donald Trump, you know, wants to give the country to to Putin. You know, what side would we be on today if Donald Trump were president? There wouldn't be one because it would be over. Be over. Yeah. Right. Um, Well, as usual, the time goes quick when we talk. um, And we cover a lot. I mean, it's not often I get to talk to somebody you know, about Donald Trump and, oh, I don't know, John Locke in the same conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Poor John Locke. Yeah. And, you know, and I recognize, um, you know, Milton Friedman is a fellow Chicagoan. I hope you don't hold that against this great city. <laughs> no, no. I love Chicago. I, I, when I think of Chicago, Milton Friedman does not come up on my list. I think of many good things, you know, from the Billy Goat Tavern to, you know, Michael Jordan's heroics in the 90s. So don't worry. I don't associate the place with Milton at all. All right. All right. Well, great. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Um, And uh, for those of you who uh, are paying attention, let me say again, the book is The Middle Out, and it is making a case for middle class economics, a really important one. So uh, I hope you get it. Thank you, Michael. Thanks. 
Thank you. Anytime. You bet. All right, everybody, we are going to take a break. And when we come back, 773-763-9278. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820. Okay, we are at 773-763-9278. I'm eager to hear what you've thought about today's show and whatever else is on your mind. Steve, welcome. Yes, and uh, one of the compliments not many people who can invoke John Rawls and the whole veil of ignorance <laughs> intellectual thought experiment. So, yeah, I compliment you on that. Um, Thank you. Yeah, okay. I, yeah, it's a, it really is up to us to recognize exactly what limitations we want to place on free speech and, and exactly how information is disseminated. Because I'm, I'm certainly glad that you guys brought up the whole role that social media has played and the Internet has played in uh, promulgating these conspiracy theories. You know, without that, without that mechanism, without that platform, these things simply don't get off the ground. And as bad as Fox was, they're not the ones who people turn to for the QAnon crazy stuff. Uh, it's not as if Tucker Carlson is despicable a human being as he was, is, and Sean Hannity are sitting there saying, you know, Hillary Clinton is eating babies and, you know, involved in this sort of thing. No, that came from people exploring this nonsense online. And and I know people are going to refer to us as, you know, gatekeepers because we actually want some sort of a standard out there. But I do. Uh, you know, I, I don't think the New York Times always gets it right. I don't think ABC News gets it right all the time. But you know what? At least I can uh, I can be confident in the notion that somebody there is an adult, that they're checking, that there are editors, that there are people who actually went to journalism school, and that there's somebody checking and checking and rechecking. And when they do get it wrong, you know, most of the time they're going to admit that they got it wrong. Uh, but there's just nothing like that. There's no mechanism online for this, and people do not understand the distinction. They think that Joe Blow's website or YouTube page is akin to the New York Times. It isn't. And un- unfortunately, you know, we're living in, in these two worlds in which some of us are getting our information from you know, peer-reviewed research journals, uh, credentialed journalists, and, and other credible sources. And you've got people getting information from God knows where, people who apparently are having visions by listening to albums, you know. So I, mm-hmm. I, I don't know what the answer is. I, I, I have never <laughs> considered myself to be a gatekeeper. But I, perhaps it is time that we started to, you know, again, uh, teach things like uh, Internet literacy. And I'm glad that that's taking place now for a new generation of young people. I don't know what to do with with regard to older people who simply don't understand the distinctions between these things. Well, I think the answer uh, per the guests that we talked to today, Steve, is um, to make them less vulnerable by helping them um, be part of a broader community and part of a working economy that they don't feel left behind and shut out because these these feelings of economic anxiety, these feelings of I'm being passed by by my country seem to make people vulnerable to going down these holes. So if we can't, we don't have to, we shouldn't only focus on the free speech aspects of this. We should focus on the societal aspects for there are a number of ways we can fight this. Oh, you're absolutely right. And this will be the last point I make in the way that it ties together in terms of the guest you had earlier who was talking about how the right is now uh, waging this war against higher education. And for exactly the reasons that you pointed out, you know, a well-educated populace is not the populace that tends to vote for them. But But if you dig a little bit deeper, you'll find the people who are funding these movements 
you know, you'll find that their children and grandchildren went to the best public and private schools. They're going to the best universities. You know, they're not sitting it out, you know, hoping that, that they're going to become billionaires somehow overnight magically without an education. You know, your, your, your long-term prospects for, for employment, for building wealth, for, for not being unemployed are all inextricably linked to your educational attainment in this country. And, going, and that, that has been true and it's going to be even more true going forward. But in this alternative universe of theirs, you're somehow going to get, you know, have you're going to have economic security, and you're just going to be tremendously wealthy without a college education. Setting aside that there's a lot of things that we learn in college that have nothing to do with making a dollar, they have to do with making you a better person. Well, and and hopefully um, it teaches a discipline of thought that will help regardless of the profession you choose. Right, it's absolutely essential in a civil society. You be an informed voter because then. Yep. Thank you, Steve. Always appreciate it. Okay. Uh, 773-763-9278. And I'm taking your calls. You know, um, it, it was so interesting. You know, we, we tend, and the Republicans are really good at this. They throw up something that we will then react to, right? And we'll have an, we'll have a solution that is fit for that problem. And then, but as soon as we mention it, they're on to something else, right? And, and, and I'm reminded of that because Steve just suggested um, uh, that we have to think about First Amendment. We have to think about how uh, how people get their news. So maybe we, you know, have to have some gatekeepers. And I know it's not, he didn't mean that by itself, but, but it comes up because it's a re- reasonable response to what we see. And yet there's a bigger response, right, that goes to let's have a society that values everybody in it. And I, I want to go back to where I was at the very beginning of this show. You know, if you just think about who we are and who we want to be, all of us, um, we're going to be okay, right? Because there isn't a, a the people that somehow one leader is the spokesperson. We are a country of millions of individuals, each with our, you know, it's only when we decide we're not individuals anymore, but we're some hive mind that follows some, you know, whatever it is, some crazy thing without thinking about it, that we make terrible, terrible mistakes, right? So the difference between um, a crowd and a collection of individuals that, that somehow amongst all of them, you know, you get wisdom that way. And I, I really think that's important. And so I keep want to, as you listen, I want to keep us lifting our eyes up. The, the, the you know, the book bans, hideous. Uh, the, the, the abuse of power to make life miserable for the most vulnerable members of society, a trans kid, right? Shameful. Um, but let's not go down the road of fighting one thing at a time. We have to fight them all, right? Um, they want, uh, they're passing laws that will um, n- not only undo, uh, uh, make it illegal to get um, pills to end a pregnancy, but they're passing laws that um, allow state officials, even though it's the law of the land, not to uh, certify um, marriages that somehow they say religiously they don't believe in, hint, gay marriages or interracial marriages even. This notion of every, you know, th- that they can nullify society 
because it doesn't meet their particular religious test is absolutely backwards. So I just let's keep our let's let's not let's not take them one at a time. Let's lift our eyes up and say we understand who we are as a people and everything they they speak about everything is our values that we don't hold and we can't let them win. Um, Jim, what do you think? Hi, Edward. How are you? All I can think of is the Equal Rights Amendment, which started in the 70s, I think of the suffragettes at the beginning of, this, of, the, of the 20th century, being put in jail on hunger strike, treated inhumanely and barbarically by men, telling them they weren't, they don't deserve to vote. And then you bring the EIRA, well, take Gandhi, for instance, he was a male chauvinist in, in Africa, his male, female companion went to jail as many times as he did. And by the time he got back to India to liberate the Indians against the Anglos, he uh, realized that women were just as important as men were. Anyway, my point being with the ERA this week, uh, Durbin picked it up again, and then Lindsey Graham said, well, if they passed it, that would take uh, this idea of abortion out of the hands of our political masters and judges, and women would decide what to do with their body, obviously. Right, Edwin? But anyway, the IRA is very, very important. It has to be passed too sweet, and we have to get women involved in this. Anytime women get involved and get underneath the social movement, it moves and it works. That's where Ireland, that's everywhere around the globe. Anyway, you have a good weekend, Edwin. Thank you. Thank you. Well, the ERA is going to be tough to make part of the Constitution because the courts have have ruled that we can't extend the deadline for passage across the states. So I may have to be a do-over. Um, Paul, what do you think? Oh, hi, Edwin. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about middle-class economics. So I have been advocating for a couple of years now the consideration of the idea that, you know, we play with the uh, Republican idea. They want states' rights and everything, and want to get rid of the IRS and stop collecting federal income taxes, that all income taxes will be collected at the state level. And that way, and then the states, the state treasuries, 50 state treasuries will pay their burden, their share, their share of the federal tax burden to run the federal government. They'll have to raise enough taxes to run their state as they do now, and then they'll have to raise collectively enough taxes to pay their share of the federal uh, tax burden, and that would be calculated by simply taking a federal budget, and we'd have to have a federal budget, and dividing it by 538 and assigning however many electors that your state has, uh, that's, you divide 538, and then you multiply by whatever Illinois has, by 16 electors, you multiply it by 16, and that's your state's share. So you're going to find that you will pit then the people, the regular people, and the state legislatures will have to decide, because I have to get the money from the parties who have it. Right now, we have this system where the, the rich can bankrupt the country. We have a $32 trillion debt. So my, I submit that as Exhibit A, that somebody's not paying their share. I mean, I'm sorry, but if the if the restaurant bill is 32 trillion bucks, somebody hasn't paid. And I would suggest that that's the people that have a lot more money in their pocket because that's who's using it. That's who's not paying. Otherwise, we wouldn't have this debt. 
Well, if we collected taxes at the state level, income taxes, then the state legislatures would have to say there's going to be no more shop- corporations shopping around for a uh, good deal from a state because the state legislature is going to have to then raise their taxes on their uh, on regular uh, working John and working Joe and working Jane. And well, Paul, it's an interesting idea. They will, of course, refuse to do it, and the nation would break into a lot of pieces. They just would say no. Well, you know what's funny is that when I talk to and I say, get rid of the IRS. When I talk to conservatives about this and say, hey, let's get rid of the IRS. Let's do what you want. And, and you know what they say? They go, <laughs> it's an interesting idea, Paul. And that's it. They don't want to talk about really doing it because they know what that means. They know that, the, see, the shell game, Edwin, is in the, in the fact that the federal government can keep borrowing money. The states can't. But the right. federal government can. And that's what they do. And that's how they, this is, and they, but at both levels, at state and and because of the fact that the federal government can borrow money, the rich and the big corporations are able to use the revenue collecting tax revenue collecting power of the government to turn around and give that money to their buddies, and then just borrow it. The unpaid bill they just put on the credit card, and they can't do that if it was responsible. They had to be responsible at the state level because you can't do that. And you also see that. The federal budget, uh, if you're a congressman from Illinois or a congresswoman from Illinois or whatever other state, you're not going to come back to your state and say, hey, I just voted for a whole lot of big bloated spending. And here's the problem. You know that since 2008, the last president, I'm pretty sure this is true, to sign a budget, a budget that was debated and passed in Congress was George W. Bush in 2008. We have had nothing but these spending measures. Ever since, because the Republican filibuster, the Republicans in the Senate have filibustered every budget. And when Obama was in office, remember the sequester? Why did we have the sequester? Because he said, give me a budget or give me 10% cuts across the board. And John Boehner said, okay, 10% cuts across the board. And then even when a Weevil and Trump was in there, they never passed budget. And you know why they don't want a budget, Edwin? Because if you have a budget, that means you can't cut taxes because you have a responsibility of revenues versus debits, right? Well, I, I think that's one reason, Paul. The other is that a budget uh, tells everybody what your values are. And the Republicans, the last thing they want to do is be honest with anybody about what they're trying to do to America. That's right. That's right. And that's what I mean, the seriously, do, and it all comes down to is pass as much money along to the rich as possible. And that's what they've been able to do. I mean, we've seen... Yeah, I've been talking to Tom Hartman. I said, he, you know, this expansion of Medicare. We said a huge expansion of Medicare. Private, that's Medicare Advantage, privatized. Expand, expanding the public schools? Yeah, we have. Uh, charter schools. They, they, they use the power of government to collect revenues and then pass it along to private parties. That's what they do. And they couldn't do that if they had to argue about that at the state level. Because we've seen that when it comes to important issues like abortion, they just became the dog that caught the bus, and they got a mouth. Well, you, you, you go too fast, so people are going to lose the thread here. One of the things that you mentioned, and it's very important for people to think about, um, is this notion that in the hands of the Republicans, we are a country that privatizes gains and socializes losses, right? Yeah. So so um, Larry Summers Democrat, but but um, economics, hard to know, thinks we should be bailing out the Silicon Valley Bank that just collapsed. 
right? It collapsed because in the Trump administration, they they begged for and they got a relief from the bank stress test. They weren't tested. They didn't have enough capital reserves when there was a flight and they went out of business and people were hurt and um, they were wealthy people were hurt, but they were hurt. And so Larry Summers says, well, you have to bail them out. But bailing them out means that losses then get spread to everybody in the country. But when the Silicon Valley crowd makes a fortune, um, nobody says that's supposed to be shared in any way, right? That's private. That's private enterprise. Right. So I, I, I just, we got to have a balance here. And privatizing gains and socializing losses is not a balance that's working for America. Anyway, Paul, I, as usual, I thought that was, I mean, I'm glad you pointed that out. Um, and as usual, it's fun to talk. I'm going to catch you next week. All right. Uh, Eduardo, you're next. Yeah, Ed, how are you doing? Thank you. Good. Hello? Yes. Uh, I was going to talk about uh, what's going on down south of the border, Mexico. I just read online that three more people who were selling clothes were abducted. And you got spring breakers coming out right now. I go, the parents should take these young people to the side and say, it's not safe to go to Cancun or Cabo, whatever you want to go over the border. There's plenty of places here where you can do, you know, Get some R and R like Arizona, Florida, California, and I heard this on uh, during this week that the second revenue for cartels is extortion of businesses over there in Mexico, behind the uh, revenue of the uh, drugs. You still there, Eduardo? So I wanted to, yeah, want to get your uh, feedback on that. Yeah, well, Mexico is um, is a wonderful country that's deeply troubled. Its democracy is not um, – it, it's a it, it's a troubled democracy. It's, and they don't really – it's not, uh, not a full democracy these days. Um, it is suffering terribly from uh, violence. Um, all those American-made guns are all over the place, and uh, there is a lot of corruption and a lot of violence. And um, – uh, but there's a lot of great stuff going on there, too. Um, it, you know, again, we do not live in a bubble. We have a lot of troubles here in, in the United States, and we need to fix them. But we, we're able to do more than one thing at once. And um, uh, <laughs> if, if you want to deal with, you know, um, if you want to, if you're worried about immigration, if you're worried about, I mean, there are a lot of things you should do, but one of them is to make other places, places that people want to live and can live safely. You know, people don't flee places that are safe where there's opportunity and the like. They flee places where they're afraid and there's violence. Um, so, so there's a lot that can be done. Um, but Mexico has a job to do itself and a big job, and it needs to uh, deal with the corruption that's there, and it needs to deal with the uh, uh, gang and the violence. Um, you know, we learned that the uh, 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 Mexican uh, military was uh, uh, using surveillance in a way that mm, not so good this last week. So the news is not perfect from our southern border. But um, it's still, you know, as far as safety, I don't know if you're at much more risk going to some places there than you would be in other places, even in the U.S. I can't say that. I'm not sure I'm ready to boycott it in any way. Um, I know it's a, it's a, um, a neighbor that could use help. And, um, you know, we have, uh, 
done some things to help and other things that have been a problem. Anyway, th- thank you for raising it. And I know, you know, the Mexicans are working hard to try and save their democracy. I mean, the, the enormous protests in Mexico City um, in the last weeks have been very inspiring. So we should not write off our neighbor. There are a lot of good people there trying to make it work. Uh, Max, you're next. Hey, how's it going? Yeah, I've, I've been uh, working down in Florida for some time, and, I, you know, like I've been driving around, and I noticed that uh, a lot of small businesses that have went out of business during COVID, none of them returned. But one thing that I, I do notice, because I, I live up in Maine, okay? I'm in North Carolina right now, and and, and uh, I work down in Florida because I, I work on people's boats, whoever wants me to do, do some uh, remodifying or, or rebuilding on their their sailboat, I, I'll do it. Okay, so but I, I noticed that most of the companies that are that are growing are companies that are on Wall Street. The small twenty three percent of small businesses went out of business, and that's millions of, of businesses, mom and pop businesses that went out during COVID, and our government helped Wall Street grow. Remember what that stimulus check did when you got that 300 bucks or whatever it was? They got a lot of money to keep these companies going, and they took over, and they got all this stuff. So now mom and pop, they're working at the Walmart and these hamburger stores at, at, at whatever it is, $10 minimum wages. They can't buy a house. They can't afford for health insurance, and that's where America is at right now. It's not in a better place. It's in a worse yeah, place. Uh- so, so Max, you, you, a couple points. Um, uh, the stimulus, the, the uh, paycheck protection plan money, a lot of that money went to small businesses, a lot of it, you know, a ton of it. Most but of COVID was really – There was a lot of it for everybody, but, but hang on, thanks. But COVID was really hard. It was really, really hard. And, and businesses that didn't have big enough reserves, and that would be small businesses, were impacted in an outsized way, right? Um, th- there, there are a lot of efforts at SBA and a lot of efforts um, in the current administration and in some of the legislation that was passed in the last Congress to help small businesses. Um, but you're pointing out a bigger thing, which is that the way our economy is structured, the rich, the very rich get very richer and everybody else tries to figure out how to stay afloat. And this is a, this is a structural problem that we have to deal with and we have to be smart about how we deal with it. That's why I was talking to the, to Michael Tomaski about the middle out, the strategies that will help us. I mean, Biden has proposed his new budget, um, increasing corporate taxes on big corporations and on people who own, whose income is more than $400,000 a year. And the Republicans have said, oh, that's dead on arrival. That'll destroy the country, right? It's nonsense. It shouldn't be dead on arrival, and it won't destroy the country. It will help well, us we rebuild. A tax, whatever for whatever, they never get it. I can tell you that they they look at at think tanks and think tanks figure this out before they put that bill out. So they knew that the money that was going to go to to companies, it was going to go to companies like Chili's. Any company that's on Wall Street, they were going to get the money. The mom and pops that we all know, our our brothers and sisters, were going to go out of business. 
Okay, and that's the way that it works. That's that's not a capitalist uh, society. That's not a capitalist nation. Okay, so we are not a capitalist society, and people need to get that through your head. The Republicans and Democrats work together to screw us around. You don't get that, you know, you're going to be buying it again this year or next year and the year after and the year after that. you got to get out of it. It's a it's a point of view, but you and I don't agree about that, Max. I think there's a big difference between what Democrats are trying to do and what Republicans are trying to do. Um, and seeing them as the same because things are bad means that there's nothing anybody can do. And that's just not right. There are a lot of things no, that people do. And all over the country, people are coming together to get them done. I mean, just look at Michigan, well, you know, where they passed but you know what? At the end of the day, we're all going to end up in the poorhouse, and those rich people that got all the money are going to have everything that they want. And us, like we're working for them right now, keep working mm-hmm. for them because I, I work for yeah. them, and a lot of them yeah. people. But you know what? But it's not them that's the problem. It, 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 it's the people that manufacture these weapons that are killing people, small children for no reason other than they want more of stuff that that they have no and they're not entitled to. That's what's going okay, on. Max. And we need to I appreciate I, I appreciate that and thank you for calling. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well um uh, it's a point of view, right, that everybody's to blame when things are terrible. And um I don't share it and I you know we talk about this, the choices that you make in government matter. And and just look at Michigan where um, uh, the right to work, so-called right to work laws that uh, let people free ride, really. You know, you, you're part of a company and a union negotiates a salary and you get a raise because the union negotiated a salary. But uh, the Republican so-called right to work laws means that union can't collect dues from you. So eventually it stops being able to negotiate the salary and people's uh, incomes go down. Crazy, right? But Michigan has now finally overturned that law. So they're you know, they're doing things um, to help working Americans, and they're doing things to help small businesses all over the place. Um, but look, if you have tons of capital, you have a lot of freedom, and you can do a lot of things that you can, can't do if you don't have it. But access to capital is not a huge problem if you have a good idea in America, really. And that's a different topic. But our system is pretty good, and we can start businesses, um, and you can get ahead. But COVID was tough. COVID was really uh, hard, and it was hard on businesses. It was hard on our society. It made a, you know, I don't think we've reckoned yet with the damage it's done to our politics. You know, Ron DeSantis um, is riding his COVID bump to a, a potential presidential nomination. I don't think you can get elected. Um, and that's despite this, you know, his horrific uh, record on on all of our freedoms that he would take away um, in the most um, uh, intimidating and thuggish way. So, so these are tough challenges. I mean, and I'm, Hmm. Max has sort of raised an interesting point. I don't think we've had a whole show or even a good segment on how damaging COVID was in America. And, um, I, you know, I don't think anybody has really come to reckon with that yet. So I'm going to keep that in mind. But please, you keep in mind right now that Wisconsin needs you. Go to WISDEMS. There is the most important um, election. They are right now small, right? We have a Supreme Court seat. 
that uh, we also have a state Senate race. But the Supreme Court seat there, um, given that people actually want to mess with the democracy, this is an election that the whole country hinges on. 